Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Welcome to the world of fear and terror. This is your host, Mr. Greaves. In today's episode, we will delve into the depths of horror and explore the unknown. From ghosts and ghouls to demons and witches, we will take you on a journey that will leave you trembling with fear. So, sit back, relax, turn off the lights, and let us drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. We found an abandoned fire lookout tower. Something terrible lives there still. Written by Dark Knight Tales. Are you sure about this? I asked Sean for what seemed like the tenth time in the last two hours that we had been hiking the overgrown trail. The sun was high overhead, filtering through the shady canopy in flares of light as the trees moved with the blowing of the cool breeze. For a late March afternoon, the weather was nearly perfect, crisp and clear, but still warm enough that we would be able to stow our heavier jackets and trade them out for light windbreakers. We've been walking for a while and I haven't seen anything yet. Sean paused a moment ahead of me, scratching idly at his leg while he checked his GPS. Yeah, we're almost there, just a little further, he said with a knowing grin. He knew that I hadn't been as keen as he was about going off plan for this little side excursion, but I also knew there was no way I was going to be able to dissuade him. He had that same look in his eyes that he always got when he had set his mind to something, I took a bearing when I saw it and we've been staying on course. Shouldn't be much longer. We've been going uphill for a while now and the trees are starting to thin a bit. We should be close. We had been hiking through Glacier National Park on our annual outing. A tradition that we've kept up every year since we left college and went our separate ways. And that time I married and started a family and Sean continued the whole bohemian wanderlust thing that he had been drawn toward for as long as we had known each other. Every month or two, he would send me a postcard from some new exotic location that he had visited, and I had been keeping tabs on his adventures via social media. Two months prior, he had hiked through Nepal and visited Everest Base Camp while I stood in a cramped conference center amidst an insipid sea of other boring monochrome colleagues and yet another in an endless line of pointless trade shows. Our connection was slowly but surely fading though, as he spent his days drifting from place to place, picking up whatever odd jobs he could to supplement his income. I was focused on my family and the white-collar career that I had built to provide for them. Aside from our yearly gathering and the few sporadic phone calls scattered around the holidays, we were slowly drifting apart. 
It was sad to think about losing that connection with someone who had been your best friend since elementary school. But I supposed it was inevitable. Just the way of things. Because of this, I was always more tolerant of Sean's flights of fancy when we were together. Despite the fact that they often ran in opposition with my own, more conservative inclinations. So, when we had been hiking atop the ridgeline earlier that morning, and Sean had suddenly stopped and pointed out, the odd structure protruding through the trees on the hill opposite of us. I hadn't offered much resistance. It was difficult to tell without binoculars from that distance, but Sean was insistent that it looked like an old fire lookout tower. I was less certain, but my eyesight wasn't as good as his, and it definitely seemed like the right shape. We weren't in fire season, and as I understood it, the towers weren't manned during this time of the year. Heck, I had even read that some states would rent them out to people as unique weekend vacation rentals. I always thought that sounded like an interesting idea and had even floated it past Cheryl a couple of times as a romantic getaway concept, knowing full well that there was little chance she would be interested in the idea. She was more of a weekend at a cottage on the beach kind of woman though, and never took much of a shy to the idea so I had given up on it. Admittedly, my interest was piqued when Sean drew my attention to the tower, and even more so when he spied what looked like an old dirt path that wandered through the shallow and forested basin separating us from it. It hadn't taken much convincing to get me to follow along behind him as we left the main trail and started the winding descent. Truth be told, I was enjoying this little adventure enjoying the feeling of rebelling against my routine-oriented instincts. When we were abruptly stopped by the chain-link fence that stretched forebodingly across the trail, that little voice in the back of my head was chanting a very distinct, I told you so mantra. Old and worn, no trespassing signs were prominently displayed along the fence line, every 30 or 40 feet. The paint faded and illegible in places. You could just make out the official seal of some government office, but it was impossible to identify which. I supposed it was probably the park service or something like that. Huh, said Sean, hands on his hips as he stood before the eight-foot-tall fence, topped with barbed wire. That's weird. Why would anybody go through the effort of putting up a fence here? I moved to stand next to him, noting how the fence ran to our right and left, lost quickly from sight at the dense trees that surrounded the narrow trail. They probably don't want anybody trespassing on the tower, I offered, wondering myself at the unexpected placement of the barrier. Nah, that doesn't make any sense, he said with an absent shake of his head, not taking his eyes off the fence. They would just put one around the base of the tower. I've seen those before. This looks like the whole area is cordoned off. I stood there another moment, silently agreeing with his assertion. It was a mystery, but not one that I was overly interested in getting to the bottom of. Finally, with a quick glance to the sunlight filtering through the trees above, I gave him a quick slap on the shoulder and nodded back the way that we had come. Regardless, we'd we better turn around if we want to make it out to the campsite before sundown. I don't want to be setting up our tents in the dark. 
Sean turned an amused smile to me, and I could see that sparkle of mischief in his eyes, reminding me so much of that little kid who always used to get me in trouble when we were younger. You're joking, right? It's just a chain link fence, Jim. I'm not climbing over that thing, I said shaking my head with a frown. The last thing that we need is for one of us to break an ankle or get caught up on that wire. Nobody even knows where we are. We should be two hours farther along the main trail by now, not bushwhacking our way up to another ridge entirely. He looked back at the fence thoughtfully, moving forward and leaning his weight against the galvanized steel mesh. There was a good amount of give to it and after a moment's consideration, he reached down and grabbed the bottom edge pulling it up from the ground. I saw that there was easily enough room for a grown man to army crawl beneath it, and I groaned inwardly at what I knew was coming next. Oh, come on, Jim. Get your butt under there and hold it up for me. We're almost there. There's no sense in turning back now. He goaded with that same grin. I gave a resigned sigh, unslung my backpack from my shoulders and shoved it under the fence following behind it on the hard-packed trail, grimacing at the stones that dug into my elbows and chest as I went. When I reached the other side, I held the mesh up for my friend and a few moments later, we both stood on the inside, re-securing our backpacks. Sean nodded past me and I turned to look at the path that continued up the gentle incline. Through the breaks in the trees ahead, I could just make out the straight lines of a man-made structure. Without another word, we struck off again, Sean in the lead and I following along behind, adjusting my heavy backpack as I went. The air, though still cool and breezy, now seemed to have an odd feeling to it, as if something had changed slightly with our trespassing. The sounds of the forest seemed to somehow subdued, and the sunlight didn't feel quite as penetrating or warm as it made its way through the canopy overhead. As we walked, I wondered if we were going to have to backtrack all the way back to the main trail in order to make for the campsite that we had registered with the ranger station, or if there was perhaps a shortcut that we could take from here that would still allow us to reach the site before we lost the light of the day. Ten minutes later, we emerged from the tree line into a wide and heavily overgrown clearing, underbrush, tall grass and vines choking the ground as we proceeded, threatening to trip us with every step. In the center of the clearing stood the subject of our quest, the lookout tower. Rising 80 feet or more above the ground, the timber-framed tower looked old and disused. It was covered in a blanket of creeper vines and green-gray moss that rose halfway up its height. At the top sat a window-lined shack, surrounded by a narrow walkway with wooden rails that appeared questionable in their integrity, at least from this distance. A metal staircase wound its way around and up the structure, rising higher and higher and ending what appeared to be a trap door in the catwalk far above. At the base of the tower stood a small cabin, not much larger than the shack that was perched atop the aging structure. A slack electric line swayed loosely in the breeze, running from the tower to what I assumed was a generator housed in a small shed beyond the cabin. The cabin's door was closed and locked from the outside by a rusty padlock securing an equally rusty latch 
though it looked like the hardware had been indifferently affixed to the frame and door with cheap wood screws, and the shackle appeared to be barely hanging onto the door frame. The windows of the cabin, all still intact, were grimy and coated with a thick layer of greenish mold, giving the strange appearance of some otherworldly frost that had beset them. The roof and walls of the cabin were covered in those same lush green creeper vines that rose partway up the tower, and the whole area gave me the sense that this location had been abandoned for many years. Despite my initial misgivings, I couldn't deny the sense of adventure and discovery that I now felt. As if we were some early 20th century explorers and we had just discovered an ancient treasure-filled temple buried in the heart of the Amazon. I grinned as the theme from Raiders floated through my thoughts. Sean gave a hoot of surprise and I walked over to where he stood, looking at an old jeep that had been parked next to the cabin and left to the ravages of nature as it slowly reclaimed the whole area. Man, I can't believe they just left this here, he said, trying to get a good look at the vehicle. The rusted metal and flat tires made it look like it had been here for 50 years or more, but I recognized the body style as one of the newer generations. I estimated that it couldn't have been more than 5 or 10 years old at the most. I guess leaving a vehicle out here to the elements really doesn't number on it before too long. I said, trying to get a look in through the mold-frosted windshield. Unfortunately, all I could make out were the shadowed silhouettes of the seats within. Eh, too bad, it was probably pretty nice when it was in good shape. Yeah, he said, lost in his own observations of the thing. It must have broken down and they didn't figure it was worth it to have it dragged out of here. He pulled out his phone and took pictures of the whole area, no doubt planning to upload them to his popular vlog, where he documented his adventures allowing others to live vicariously through them. He lowered his phone and pressed a few keys, frowning. Man, service out here really sucks. It's been up and down all day. You would think it would be pretty good standing on top of a mountain. I chuckled, pulling my attention away from the jeep and turning it to the lookout tower, looming out above us. It seemed insanely tall from this position, but it occurred to me that I had no idea exactly how tall most of them were. It's possible that this one was perfectly average. The wooden structure looked surprisingly intact as it rose high above me, and I marveled at what a pain it must have been to build it out here in such a remote location. The creeper vines covered most of it, intermixed with that stringy moss that gave it a furry appearance. I could see that the moss and vines had reached the walkway at the top, and the moss hung over the border like the frayed edges of an old tablecloth. Again, I wondered idly how long this thing had sat derelict, forgotten by the agency that had built and manned it. It was almost sad in a way. It was likely this tower in the cabin nearby had been the home of the ranger stationed here for quite a while. At one point, the whole clearing would have been neatly cut back and maintained, and the tower and cabin kept clear of the encroaching vegetation. It was equally likely that the cabin had also served as a sort of a substation for the rangers, where hikers and campers would pass through sometimes and check in or ask directions. Now it sat, silently forgotten, and left to die in this sea of trees, long abandoned by those who had built it and kept it company. 
A wave of motion swept across the creepers above me. A breeze too high for me to feel sending the ivy-like leaves to move in patterns very reminiscent of ocean waves. The hollow echo of boots on metal drew my attention, and I looked over to see Sean mounting the blanketed staircase. What are you doing? I asked. He just grinned and waved me over. Come on, Jim, let's take a look upstairs. It's gotta be a heck of a view. And before I could protest, he was climbing the steel tread stairs, hand lightly gliding atop the tubular railing as he went. With a last look around the clearing, I surrendered to my friend's enthusiasm, and I followed him up the stairs that ascended the tower in a squared spiral. Although the voice in the back of my mind warned of the obvious dangers of decayed timber and rusted metal, it was quickly overridden as I rose above the ground, my footfalls a muted ringing that seemed too loud in the quiet that had at some point settled over the forest around us. Up and up I climbed, the forest floor falling away below me as we approached the soaring canopy of the old trees. Looking down, I paused a moment, marveling at how small the ranger station seemed now, roughly centered in the broad clearing. I could see the vine-covered jeep on the side of the small building and the generator shack behind it. Turning away, I watched as Sean disappeared around the corner above and ahead of me, continuing his climb. I followed, quickening my pace to join my friend. We broke free of the treetops a few flights before we reached the catwalk of the lookout shack, and I had to stop again and stand in awe at the view that stretched out in all directions around us. The forest that covered the hills and valleys seemed almost like we were in the middle of some great green sea, surrounded by the frozen crests and troughs of its immense swells. A cool wind found us now and tugged at my hair and nylon windbreaker trying to chase away the sudden warmth of the midday sunlight that now had an unobstructed path to us. I looked downward, my eyes following the lines of the tower structure as it dropped away through the trees and into the heavily shadowed forest below. Even though we had only just been there, it felt distant somehow, slightly unsettling and much darker than it had seemed previously. Now that we stood in the afternoon sun, the clearing below was a sharp contrast, lush and alive, but also hidden and in some way secretive. Jim, up here, called Sean and I quickly jogged the last few flights of stairs to join him atop the tower catwalk, where he had dropped his pack and now leaned against the waist-high wooden railing that bordered it. Mia was lost in the moment the sun shining on his face as he gazed with a childlike wonder at the vista stretching out before us. A fleeting moment of unease almost caused me to chastise him for trusting his life with what was probably not the most reliable of structures, but I knew that it wouldn't do any good. So instead, I set my own backpack next to his, against the wall of the shack and stood next to him. Man, this is an incredible view, he said. I just nodded. We stood there for another moment before he straightened and walked around the corner of the window line shack looking for the door. I followed, trying to peer through the glass as we went, but that same molder mildew that we found in the cabin windows below 
also clouded these, obscuring any detail within. He found the door and I was mildly surprised to find that the creeper vines and moss had managed to climb this high, out of the shadowed forest to take a hold even up here. Though they seemed a little grayer and less insistent on their grasp, and I didn't think they fared very well in the direct sunlight. Even so, they had tangled in the door and Shauna had to lean his weight into it and push hard to swing it inward, tearing and snapping away the vines as he did so. We stepped through the threshold into what felt almost like we were stepping into a greenhouse, much of the interior walls and surfaces having surrendered to encroachment of the vegetation. Along one wall was a small cot, the mattress and sheets torn and decayed and stained green with mold. A small writing desk occupied the opposite wall, and a square wooden table stood a sentry in the center of the room, covered in the deteriorated remains of notebooks and loose pages. The air in the shack was strangely humid and close, and the heavy sense of nature filled my every breath, the calm serenity that I often associated with the now oddly absent. The light of the afternoon sun struggled to penetrate the clouded windows and instead cast a greenish tint to even those surfaces not already covered by vegetation. The corner of the room nearest the cot was a tangle of leaves and vines that formed a small mound, likely where the vines received the least amount of direct sunlight and allowed them to flourish. I became aware that I had been unconsciously holding my breath for a moment, still standing just inside the doorway and felt a quiet warning at the back of my mind. An uncomfortable sensation that urged me to leave the tower and get back to the main trail. It was then that I realized how much time we had spent in our unplanned exploration, and how the sun had continued its descent towards the western horizon. This early in the year, we probably only had a couple of good hours of daylight left, and a quick mental calculation told me that it was unlikely we would make it to our prearranged campsite before full dark even if we were fortunate enough to find some shortcut from here. I cursed under my breath, aware that we would likely be stumbling through the dark on the trail, and forced to try to find a suitable area to set up camp for the night. Okay, Sean, time to go, I said, stepping back out of the doorway and onto the catwalk. We need to get back to the main trail post-haste. As it is, we're going to be hiking in the dark for a little bit. I walked around and picked up my pack, noting with mild surprise that some of the vines had already managed to attach themselves to it, clinging to the fabric as I pulled it away. I looked through the open trap door in the catwalk at the dizzying view to the ground below, the muted greens of the vines obscuring most of these steps and causing them to blend into the background beyond, giving the disquieting illusion that they had somehow vanished and I was staring at an 80-foot freefall. It was strange, but I could no longer clearly discern any of the metal steps through the blanket of creepers. Of course, with the light beginning to fade, most of the tower was cast in growing shadows, and I wrote it off as an optical illusion. Sean? I called back over my shoulder. When I didn't get a reply, I shook my head and ducked back into the doorway finding my friend standing at the central table and leafing through a notebook that he had found. He looked up at my arrival, an unreadable expression on his face, 
as he nodded at the handwritten pages. I found a logbook left by the ranger. Check it out. It's strange though. Come on, Sean, take it with you and you can read it later. We gotta get going. I said, not bothering to keep the frustration from edging my tone. Hang on a sec, Jim, he said, turning his attention back to the weathered pages. These pages are dated from October of last year. This thing is only five months old. That can't be right, it's obviously a mistake. I said, growing more impatient. This place has been abandoned for years. Let's go. Just listen a sec, he snapped, and the insistence in his voice quelled my growing irritation. When I felt quiet, he started reading aloud. October 15th. After two days of my new posting, I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable out here. I can't really put my finger on it, but it feels like there's something here with me. It's like I'm never alone no matter where I am or what I'm doing. Not sure what to make of it. The weirdest thing is the lack of animal life around here. It's like they avoid this area for some reason. It's eerie. October 16th. I spent all day cutting back the vines from the tower and station. I'm going to need to see if I can get some sort of herbicide to keep them in check. Last night, the generator cut out and I discovered that the filter and carburetor were completely blocked up by the moss. It took me nearly an hour to clear them and get it running again. Nobody told me that most of my duties here would be as a landscaper, or I would have brought my floppy hat and gardening gloves with me. October 18th. I'm not sure what's going on. I know that I heard some weird rumors about this place before I had accepted the posting, but they all sounded like BS to me. Now I'm not so sure. The generator is down again and I've decided to stay in the lookout tower overnight. Tomorrow, I'll need to figure out my next move for sure, but I'm done here. They'll need to find somebody else to man the station. What the heck is going on out here? Sean stopped reading and looked up at me, his face a mask of confusion in the slowly waning light of the afternoon. What else does it say? I asked now very interested in the logbook for some reason. He looked up at me and shrugged. Nothing, that's the last entry. He must have booked it out of here the next day. Yeah, I said. But if the ranger was so gung-ho on getting out of here, why did he leave his jeep? You can't tell me he decided to just hike out of here. A disturbing thought struck me at that moment and my eyes wandered hesitantly to the mound of vegetation in the corner of the room which I now recognize to be unusually large and strangely formed as if concealing something. You don't think, I said, my words trailing off. No way, Sean said lowly in disbelief, dropping the logbook to the table and moving cautiously to the shadowed corner near the cot, eyes fixed upon the mass of vines and ivy. Sean, I started, some unarticulated warning creeping into my tone but I didn't know what else to say and the words died in my throat. He reached the mound and crouched carefully, tilting his head and peering intently into the green shadows, trying to discern any detail within. He looked back at me a moment, as if to reassure himself that I was still there, 
and then cautiously reached his hand out to clear some of the vines for a better look. In that moment, I caught a glimpse of khaki peeking through the leaves, and of something bleach-white encased within the cloth. Bones? I gasped sharply and took an involuntary step backwards, bumping into the table and knocking the logbook to the floor. Sean jerked his head around at the sudden sound and lost his balance, reaching out reflexively to steady himself. His hand sank into the pile of vegetation and he gave a sharp cry of pain. I saw then that the leaves and the vines had long, evil-looking thorns the length of my fingers and glistening shiny black in the dim light. He cursed and tried to yank his hand free, but something held him in place. Ow, that hurts, he hissed, struggling to free himself. With a sudden rustling movement, the vines had constricted around his wrist tightly, the wire-like length snapping like a spring-loaded snare. Once his hand was trapped, they continued tightening until the flesh beneath them abruptly parted, opened as neatly as by any razor blade. Sean howled in pain and fought frantically to disengage himself from the tangle, blood pumping from the terrible wound and staining his yellow windbreaker a nightmarish tie-dye of crimson. Without another thought, I leapt forward and reached for his free hand to lend my strength to his own and pull him free, but before I reached him, his struggles upset his balance once again and this time, he fell headlong into the writhing mass of green and red. In an instant, the vines surged over him, enveloping him down to his shoulders with a sickening hunger. I drew back in revulsion and fear, my mind not able to process what I was seeing. And that's when he started screaming. It was a horrific, blood-curdling shrieking of raw terror and suffering, as he lay face down in the pile of brutal thorns and vines that now covered his upper body, writhing and legs flailing wildly oblivious to the awful lacerations that he was suffering in the process. Red now slicked the floorboards beneath him, and his cries were muffled and distant. I could only stand there in mute shock, watching him helplessly, as his struggles gradually began to slow and grow weaker. Not long after, he fell silent and still, and he didn't move again. I don't know how long I stood there, unblinking, unbelieving, alone. I know that when I did finally gather my senses and turn to flee, I discovered to my horror that the vines had stealthily expanded across the doorway to the shack, blocking my only exit and my only escape. I sit here now atop the table in the center of the room, only a few feet away from what's left of my best friend. I've tried over and over to get some sort of signal on my phone, but the single bar that periodically appears is elusive and fleeting never present long enough to make a call for help. I'm writing this locally on my phone, hoping that it will automatically transmit when the signal returns. Those vines have covered the whole floor now and I can see in the light of my cell phone that they've started climbing the legs of this table. If it were closer to dawn, I might have more hope. I think these things shrink from the sunlight, but dawn is six hours away and the vines are only getting closer. It won't be too much longer now. I used to be a park ranger in the Adirondacks. I think we're all in trouble. Written by Dark Knight Tales. 
It was close to three in the afternoon when the knock came on the door to the ranger station. I was mildly surprised to hear it, given that it was early January in the foothills of the Adirondacks and the temperature was hovering at a balmy 12 degrees, with wind chills driving it into the negatives with frustrating frequency. The wind had been howling against the isolated station since before sunrise that morning, and I wondered if I was going to need to deal with any damage to my little abode after the storm blew through. I had been monitoring the forecast and weather radar all day, and it looked like I was in for quite a blizzard by the time evening had rolled around. It had been snowing most of the day already, but so far it hadn't been very heavy. I expected that to change by nightfall, however, which in January was only in another couple of hours. I didn't usually keep the front door to the ranger station locked since it wasn't uncommon for hikers and campers to make a pit stop on their way up the trail to the observation areas, either to log their camping site for the night or just in hopes of a nice hot cup of coffee before they continued on their hike. The door hadn't been latching correctly lately though and had the tendency to swing open when a strong gust had caught it just right so I had been keeping it locked until I could repair it. The knocking was light, somehow hesitant and almost polite, if that makes any sense. It was so quiet that I almost didn't hear it over the whistling of the wind and the creaking of the station. I had been in the middle of composing an email request for a new generator, as mine had been acting up quite a bit lately, and I had to pause my typing and listen intently to ensure that I had even heard it in the first place when it came again only a bit louder. I pushed back from my desk and took another sip from my steamy mug before walking over and opening the door. Outside stood five people, three men and two women, all dressed in what looked like expensive and very new cold weather coats and snow pants, all looking very similar except for the various bright colors and all bearing the familiar North Face logo. Their anxious faces peeped out from within their drawn and cinched hoods and I had to suppress a grin. They looked dressed to climb Everest, not hike the lower trails of the Adirondacks. Tourists, probably European and probably their first time seeing this type of weather, I thought. It was a fairly common occurrence. Folks from all over the world came to visit these mountains looking to experience all the beautiful wilderness that we had to offer. I wasn't unsympathetic. If you weren't used to the unpredictable climate here in the winter, it could quickly catch you by surprise and get dangerous very quickly. Hi there, I said cheerfully, stepping back into the doorway and motioning them inside. Come in out of the snow and warm up by the fire. The man who had been knocking turned to his companions and said something in Spanish, and then turned back to me with a wide grin and nodded, stepping past me and into the warmth of the station. The rest followed quickly, anxious to get out of the chill wind that was blowing hard outside. As soon as they were all in, I closed the door again and locked it to make sure that it didn't blow open. Gracias, sir. I am Martin said the man, pulling back his hood and unzipping his quilted downcoat. He gestured to the others in turn. 
Mrs. Lucas, Diego, Sofia, and Triana. I nodded my greeting to each. Martin continued with a smile. It is very cold. We come to visit the USA from Spain to see your beautiful mountains and enjoy the lovely scenery. His accent was heavy, but his English was far better than my Spanish, so I didn't have much room to criticize. But it seems a storm is coming and we fear there will be too much snow. Unfortunately, we're not so prepared for that. I nodded, patting him on the shoulder as I moved past him and opened the door leading to the shelter room, reaching in and turning on the lights. That's certainly true, my friend. I'm afraid we're in for a bit of a blizzard this evening. Bad time for when a stroll through the mountains, I said. Fortunately, we happen to have enough space for you and your friends to make yourself at home and wait out the storm. My name is Jackson Turner, Ranger. There's coffee over there on the table and bunks in a comfortable sitting area in here. When the group just stared at me blankly for a moment, I got the feeling that I had lost most of them somewhere along the way. Instead, I just offered the friendliest smile that I had and gestured to the room. At that, they all grinned and nodded their thanks as they quickly shuffled past me, dropping their packs on various bunks and beginning to remove their cold weather gear. I made sure they all got something hot to drink and that they understood that they were welcome to stay until the weather had cleared before returning to my desk. They all seemed very pleasant and grateful for my assistance, and they drifted from my thoughts as I continued my administrative work. It was another hour before the second knocking came at the door, this one slow and oddly arrhythmic. Almost a staccato beat, somehow unsteady and not as tentative as my other guests had been. I sighed heavily and I straightened, heading around the counter and back over to the door. I hadn't had any visitors to the ranger station in a week or more, and now they were pouring in like it was a Holiday Inn Express or something. I unlocked the door and I pulled it open, putting on my official greeting smile once again. In the doorway, his shoulders and hooded head covered in a layer of icy snow, was a man of roughly my height, about six foot or so. Unlike the others, he wasn't dressed in fancy, color-coordinated cold-weather gear, but instead wore a mismatched combination of clothes, like he had raided the bargain bin at a second-hand expedition store. His pants were a blue quilted nylon and looked more on the expensive side, even if they didn't exactly fit him very well. But his coat was fur-lined and looked like it was made of padded wool, layered over an old fleece jacket. His boots looked newer and not too warm, something more suited to a summer hike than a winter in the mountains, I thought. Hey there, I said as warmly as I could, waving him inside. Come on in and get out of the snow. He didn't say anything but he gave the slightest hint of a nod as he walked past me. The strong scent of musky body odor followed him, and I wondered if he was one of those reclusive hermits that I had heard rumors of, living out here all by himself in some makeshift hut. I closed the door and I locked it again, turning back to the man. He had already taken note of the bunk room to the left where these Spaniards were getting settled and he headed on in and sat on one of the empty bucks in the back corner of the room. 
He didn't remove his coat or offer any greeting to the others. And I noted with some curiosity that he didn't even have any sort of pack with them. Which further made me wonder if he lived nearby in some off-grid cabin. And I could see that the others were smiling and making pleasantries towards him. But he only sat there. Dark eyes quietly watching the activity without a single word. There was the slightest hint of a smile upon his lips. Incongruous and somehow unnerving. It only took them a few moments to abandon their attempts at including him in conversation and turn back to their own group, speaking quietly in Spanish amongst themselves. For a moment, I wondered if he might be in some sort of shock. The temperature was dropping pretty quickly outside, and it had already been too cold for some of the clothing that he wore. I considered giving him a quick once-over to make sure that he didn't have any frostbite or signs of hypothermia, but something about him told me that he might not be so welcoming to my attention. I stood there in the doorway to the bunk room for a minute, looking over the scene. Something about the newcomer just seemed off, somehow. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but the way that he moved, his lack of communication, the way that he was just sitting perfectly still in the corner bunk, it just seemed strange. And there was something else too. Something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Something that tickled at the back of my consciousness. Just out of rage. More an instinctive unease than coherent thought. I found myself hoping the man would spend a few minutes warming himself. And then be on his way again. And turning my attention to the others. I realized that they must have found something odd with him as well as they had all subconsciously clustered around the end of the table, farthest from him, and they were speaking more quietly than before, more subdued. I noticed them periodically casting quick uncomfortable glances in his direction, but never for more than the briefest of moments, as if they were just reassuring themselves that he hadn't moved and he was still sitting there. I also noticed, curiously, that none of them sat with their back to the man, Likely, also subconsciously. I was just about to walk over and talk to him, to shake the odd feeling away, when Martin appeared in front of me, his brow furrowed. Sir, my friends and I are worried about the other campers, he said. This drew my attention. There weren't any other campers registered to be out here today. Was the newcomer one of them, and maybe they were in trouble? What campers? I asked with a frown. He motioned vaguely to the north. We passed their campsite on our way to the observation point before the weather turned us back here, maybe a half kilometer up the trail in a clearing beside a small brook. He cast a quick look over his shoulder at the stranger sitting in the corner. There it was again, I thought. That same unease. Martin continued. There were three of them, two men and a woman. They had some of those cold weather tents set up and seemed to be well prepared for the storm, at least as far as we could tell. We stopped and warmed ourselves by their fire for a bit. They seemed very experienced and were not concerned about the cold, but I'm no expert. Well, it sounds like they should be okay, I said with the best reassuring smile that I could muster. 
They should have checked in with me, but if they're as prepared as you think, I'm sure that they'll be just fine. When the storm passes, I'll head up there and check on them, just to make sure. He flicked his eyes to the man again and then locked them with mine with a surprising intensity, like he was trying to tell me something with his gaze alone. He lowered his voice and said, The campers, they were all wearing very good clothing. Sophia's brother is a climber in some very cold regions and she recognized the camper's gear is similar to what he uses. Even better news. I started, but Martin cut me off. Exactly like the pants that man is wearing now, he said quietly. I looked over at the man again, once again taking note of his hodgepodge combination of clothing. The gloves that he still wore looked to be thin and ill-suited to the winter weather, but they looked well-made and would have been fine for a mild autumn outing. He still hadn't moved or said anything and his emotionless eyes drifted slowly across the Spaniards with what seemed to be growing paranoia, like a hungry interest. It was almost like he was taking inventory of them, evaluating them somehow. Once again, that tickle in the back of my brain, telling me something was not quite right with the man. Something was just a little out of place, but I still couldn't figure it out. I set my teeth on edge. I looked back at Martin. Are you sure? He shrugged. As sure as we can be. Sophia says that she's certain, but the rest of us don't have the experience to recognize these details as well as her. Was this man with them? I asked, but I already knew the answer. Martin shook his head. No, I've never seen him before now. He leaned in a little closer and lowered his voice. This man, there is something, he said, trailing off, unable to find the right words. I nodded. I know, I feel it too. I walked back to my desk and opened a drawer, retrieving the holstered handgun and attaching it to my belt. The spare magazine went into my pocket, and I grabbed my heavy jacket from a nearby hook and pulled my fur-lined hat over my ears. Martin followed me, watching with interest. I looked over his shoulder, making sure that we were out of sight and earshot of the bunk room. I'm going to go check in the cab. Have you ever handled a shotgun? I asked. He nodded. I hunt pheasant with my cousins every year. I'm a very good shot. Good, I said. That doorway beside my desk is my room. Right inside you'll find a 12-gauge pump, loaded but not chambered, if you need it. He just gave a silent duck of his head. I should be back within the hour. I know the place that you're talking about. Keep him here until I return, but don't do anything if you don't have to, I said closing my coat and making sure the zippered slit covering my holster was open and accessible. Be careful, Jackson Turner. I feel some darkness in the air. I just gave a tight-lipped nod before opening the door and stepping out into the wind. The icy chill hit me immediately, cutting through my heavy pants and finding its way through every little opening in my clothing. The wind out here was a constant buffeting and howl to my ears. The snow along the trail was only a little over ankle deep, but it tugged at my boots with every step, slowing my progress. 
The area that Martin had described was one of the few marked campsites along this area of the trail. And though it wasn't strictly required for campers to check in before setting up, it was highly encouraged. This deep in the woods, 20 miles away from the nearest town, the only real lifeline that anyone had were the rangers. If anything went wrong out here, the fact that you registered with the local ranger station may very well mean the difference between life and death. That didn't mean that everybody followed that rule though. Most of the time it was new campers, those folks lacking some of the wisdom of experience that didn't know or didn't think it necessary to check in before setting up camp. Sometimes it was the opposite. Some highly experienced outdoors folks felt that there was no need, that they could handle anything that came their way. Either way, as I followed that northern trail, a growing unease began to color my stops. I felt the tight grip of anxiousness tickling my every breath. I didn't know what I was going to find. If I was lucky, I would find three cold-weather double-wall silicone nylon tents with their occupants snuggled warmly and safely within. If that was the case, I would just go and check on them and then turn back to my station, hopefully before the worst of the storm began in earnest. If not, well, I would have to figure that out when it came. A half hour later, I had reached the campsite, or at least what was left of it. The remains of what were obviously three high-quality winter tents were positioned compactly around the central fire pit, their bright red material shredded and torn and flapping violently in the fierce wind, looking very much like a lunatic array of flags in the heart of a hurricane. I pulled the ears of my hat lower, adjusting the chin strap tighter. Hello? I shouted, straining to make my voice carry above the wind. Even with all my force, it still sounded pathetically impotent in the roar of the coming storm. Is anyone here? I waited for a long moment, but I could hear nothing but the rush of wind and the whip-like snapping of the nylon fabric. The campsite had all the hallmarks of a bear attack, except I hadn't seen a bear in months, and we had never had a bear attack in this area that I had ever heard of. It wasn't like the forest out west. We didn't have brown bears here. Black bears, yeah, but they were smaller and nowhere near as aggressive as the brown bears. Sure, they could be dangerous, especially if startled or threatened, but they didn't actively hunt humans. I took a few more steps forward into the campsite, drawing the Sigsar 10mm and holding it at low ready as I performed a quick visual of the tents. Nothing. No signs of bodies, of blood, a struggle, anything at all. Just destroyed tents that could have been abandoned by the campers when the wind had started getting bad and the fabric had started to fray. And then it caught my eye. A flash of dark gray, partially hidden by the snow between two of the tents. Another ten minutes of snowfall and I would have never seen it. Moving closer, I towed the frozen bundle of cloth, overturning it before picking it up with my free hand keeping the SIG at the ready. It was a pair of thick winter pants, old and torn and covered in dark red-brown stains that looked too fresh for my comfort. They were fur-lined and looked to be woolen. As soon as I had lifted them free of the snow, 
The wind blew a familiar musky smell into my face and I dropped them in revulsion. Another two feet beyond, the henna blue and the white drift drew my attention and I cautiously approached. I recognized the puffy material of a cold weather jacket and when I reached out to expose more of it, I staggered backwards in shock. Realizing suddenly that I was looking at a crudely dismembered arm still wrapped snugly in its warm jacket sleeve. I cursed aloud and I stumbled backwards, tripping over the stones surrounding the fire pit and falling hard on my butt, eyes wide and not even registering the pain of my tailbone meeting the frozen ground. I sat there hyperventilating for what felt like minutes long enough that the frigid chill was settling into my legs and backside from where I sat dumbly in the snow, eyes wide and breath ragged. It was only when my arms began to shake that I realized that I was gripping the handgun as tightly as I could, aimed insanely at the gray mass of frozen trousers on the ground before me, as if they were suddenly going to spring to life and attack. Crap was all that I could think to say as rationality suddenly returned, clearing the pulsating red spots from my vision and slamming my thoughts back to the preset jarringly. The pounding in my ears began to lessen, replaced once again with the unrelenting wail of the wind. I leapt to my feet and started running back along the trail back to my station where Martin and Lucas and Diego and Sophia and the other girl whose name that I couldn't remember sheltered from the coming storm with. With what? Was he some sort of psycho, stalking the lonely hiking trails of upstate New York? That didn't make any sense. I had been here for three years and never heard of anything like this. As I ran clumsily through the snow, which was now halfway up my shin, I thought back to those gray pants discarded in the campsite. They had been shredded, not just torn and ripped from age and wear. It had been something violent that had caused the damage, and the stains seemed to lend credence to that theory. So whatever had happened, the stranger had decided to replace his damaged and stained pants with that, those of his victims. And then I thought about how none of his clothes matched, and how his boots and gloves weren't even suitable for winter weather. How long had this been going on? Twenty minutes later, the dim yellow lights from the windows of my station appeared suddenly from the nearly whiteout conditions that had overtaken me with the full coming of the storm. The temperature had dropped even more and I was amazed that I was able to keep up my pace as long enough to make it back, driven by adrenaline and fear. I slowed to a halt before my ranger station, noticing immediately how the front door hung open a few inches. My mind urged me forward to go racing in, but I had to take a few moments to catch my breath and let my racing heart slow a bit before I entered. I couldn't understand why the door was only open a few finger widths if it hadn't been locked. The first strong gust of wind would have blown it fully open and sent it banging against the wood paneling of the wall behind it. But what occupied my thoughts far more than the implication of that open door there was no way that it could have been missed by anybody within, and nobody in their right mind would have sat in the station while the freezing wind and snow blew in through the open doorway. 
I pushed that thought aside and crept as quietly as possible to the door, pushing it gently at first, then with greater force as I felt some resistance holding it closed. I gripped my sidearm tightly, muzzle directly forward and at chest level, finger resting along the frame of the pistol and ready to drop to the trigger and go to work in a moment's notice. The door gradually gave way and pushed inward far enough that I was able to slide through the gap. The howling of the wind and the protesting of the building blessedly providing enough cacophony to cover the sounds of my entrance. As soon as I stepped inside, I found myself in the center of a fever nightmare. A body lay behind the door and it served as an impromptu barricade. I could only tell that it was one of the women by the delicate shape of the body, as the head and upper torso had been savaged, the skin and scalp torn away from the red-white of the skull viciously, presumably while she had desperately tried to make her escape from whatever had pursued her. Red is slicked nearly every surface around me hot and stinking of copper, and I became aware of a wet, tearing sound emanating from the bunk room. The lights in that room were flickering chaotically, the hanging bulb in the center of the room swinging maniacally, as if it had been recently struck and was still settling its pendulum motion. As quietly as I could, I ducked around the doorway into the room, fresh shock coursing through my body in a cold wash that threatened my consciousness. Bodies and pieces of bodies lay strewn about the room haphazardly, most still enshrouded in bits of clothing, now tacked in place by sticky crimson. I could feel the heat in the room from whatever horrifying act of violence had occurred, from the bodies that now lay scattered about like discarded playthings. At my feet, I noted a handful of empty shotgun shells, where they had fallen and been arrested by the viciousness that painted the wooden floorboards. The shotgun lay nearby, chamber open and magazine tube empty, only inches away from the barely recognizable remains of the man that I had known as Martin. Terrible slashes covered his body, looking as if he had been thrown into a shredder. His limbs were outstretched and only attached by the yellowish tendons and pink muscles which now lay open and exposed. My eyes were drawn at that moment to the source of these sounds that I had heard before. And I saw that crouched form of these strangers straddling one of the bodies. Lucas, I think, by the bright yellow of his North Face jacket. I watched in horror as the stranger dipped his head again and again, jerking it savagely each time it came away, as if tearing away more bits of meat with each movement. I noticed then that the stranger's hands had somehow grown elongated and taken on a shiny, chitinous appearance that left the fingers as jagged and encrusted claws. After only a moment's shocked hesitation, my reflexes took over and I snapped the muzzle of my handgun up and squeezed the trigger. I know that the thunderous blast of a 10mm must have been deafening, but I barely registered it as I watched blackened holes appear in the thing's back. It threw its head back in what I can only hope was pain and cried out in a shrieking screech that drowned out all else. I squeezed the trigger again and another bullet punched its way through the horrifying thing, 
Suddenly, almost faster than I could track, the stranger exploded up from where it had been feasting and lit upon the wall. Its terrible claws sinking into the wood and holding it in place as it turned its head 180 degrees to face me. The eyes had turned completely black and grown to the size of golf balls, and the jaw looked almost to have disjointed from its skull. The skin at the corners of its mouth drawn back in a hideous grin that stretched nearly from ear to ear, exposing a mouthful of sharp like triangular teeth, now stained bright red. It tensed and an instant later it had leapt to the next wall, gripping the exposed wood like some monstrous insect, eyes fixed upon me. Before I could make another move, I fired again and again and again, my panic-induced attack miraculously finding purchase more often than not, as empty brass cases ejected against the doorframe next to me, ringing out like death bells. Then there was a long moment of silent stillness in the room, and its black eyes were fixed on me, still unnervingly cold and alien. I tensed, waiting for the thing to pounce towards me, but it was clear that I had heard it. I don't know how badly, but black ichor dripped from the half-dozen wounds punched by my hollow points, and I thought that I heard a sickly rattling in its slow and deep breathing. With a final ear-splitting otherworldly shriek, it leapt again, this time away from me and through the window at the rear of the room. The glass shattered outward, and then it was over. I stood alone in this charnel house, left only with the remains of the five Spanish tourists and the disconcerting awareness that the slide of my handgun was locked back, smoke lazily drifting from the barrel and the magazine now empty. That was almost a year ago and I've since transferred from field operations to an administrative position within the park service. My office is located in the middle of a city surrounded by people and without a lonely forest or dark wilderness in sight. After the investigation died down and the desperate ruled as animal predation, I tried to return to my posting but I just couldn't do it. They tore down the old station and built a new one closer to the trailhead, and I thought that I could get past it but I kept seeing that stranger, that creature every time I closed my eyes. A few times in the dark stillness of the night, I thought that I could hear that banshee wail echoing in the distance. Once or twice, I think I heard more than one. I slept with my handgun on the nightstand and the shotgun propped next to my bed, and I kept the doors locked at all times. I couldn't shake the feeling that it was still out there, maybe searching for me. Maybe it needed to make sure that I wasn't able to tell anybody about it. You see, in the time since that horrible night, I've scoured the internet for any possible explanation for what I saw. I consulted any self-proclaimed cryptozoologist or paranormal investigator that would speak to me. But nobody had any rational explanations beyond fairy tales and urban legends. And invariably, I was left with as many questions as I had started with. And then I came across an article one day that changed everything for me. It was a piece written about something called the Uncanny Valley, an idea put forth by some Japanese roboticist back in the 70s. At first, I almost passed over it, since it seemed mostly to relate to robots and computer graphics, and how people feel increasingly uncomfortable the more realistically human they appear. 
But then I read a theory about why people re may react this way, and Tala may be an evolutionary artifact left over in the dark corners of our reptilian brains. About how at some point in our distant shared history, there may have actually been predators that looked almost human. They may have appeared so close to our ancestors that they were able to blend in with us almost perfectly. According to the theory, primitive humans may have developed a keen sense of facial recognition as a survival mechanism. This may have been passed down through genetic memories, fading just a little with each generation until today, where it existed as little more than an instinctive warning when we looked at someone who wasn't quite right. Someone who seemed almost normal, but perhaps with the slightest of imperfections that made them seem just a little wrong. Someone that our instincts told us didn't belong. Someone who wasn't really one of us at all. I wondered if these things had been with us all along, hiding among us, stalking us from within our own numbers. Yesterday, on my commute to the office, I noticed a young woman sitting by herself in the back of a subway car. Even though it was crowded, the seats beside her were empty and I noticed that the other commuters almost seemed to be avoiding getting too close to her. I don't think anyone really realized it, but people kept glancing uneasily at her out of the corners of their eyes. There was nothing overtly out of place with her, and it could have just been a happenstance that nobody had elected to sit down next to her. I just couldn't shake the feeling though, that something just felt off. There's nothing quite like the smell of fresh-baked bread coming out of the oven. What if I told you that you could get all of that deliciousness with none of the time and work involved? Well, you can from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants, unlike typical supermarket bread. Every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient grain sourdough loaf and fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. I received both of these items in my Wild Grain box and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular stuff that I would buy at the store, and much more fresh. My favorite had to be the ancient grain sourdough loaf. It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own with some butter and oil. And I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus a free croissants in every box, when you go to wildgrain.com creep to start your subscription. Yeah, you heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first one when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep or you can use promo code creep at checkout.
I found evidence of a nuclear accident that never happened. Written by Epic Wizard Cowboys. I am a collector of vintage and lost news media. After acquiring a collection of old small town papers from a tiny library that was shutting down its doors, one piece stuck out to me. It was not dated and faded like the rest of the collection. It looked like it had been bought in that morning. It contained the most unusual subject matter, and I would have passed it off as some work of outsider art, if not for the images contained within, and the unsettling events unfolding in the wake of my attempts to find the source of this article. Perhaps you too, dear reader, will come to believe in the events at Grouse Springs, or maybe you will dismiss it as so many others have. As I had initially, maybe it's easier to continue living as if nothing like this could change our daily life. And I fear that it already has. Blast Radius, an investigation into the tragedy and cover-up of Grouse Springs by Douglas Ray Cleavon, published August 2021. In one afternoon, Grosse Springs, Virginia went from being a sleepy farming town to a place soaked in infamy. It is now spoken almost exclusively in the company of names such as Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and Chernobyl. Residents across the East Coast remember June 23, 2016 as a day of unique terror, forced to take shelter in Cold War-era bomb shelters while the rest of the country recalls a fear of threats to our capital city, evacuation, a panic. 1,437 lives lost, some with bodies that still haven't been found even years later. 1,437 friends, children, loved ones, gone. The Grouse Springs Nuclear Plant's official statement claimed that the planet experienced the loss of coolant incident at the hands of some negligent employee who had mistakenly stopped the flow, causing the pipes to burst from heat and the dangerously outdated graphite tips to catch fire and begin a nuclear meltdown. The fire spread rapidly to the town, and due to a delayed warning system, not everyone had time to make it out. All 532 employees of the power plant were killed, as well as 408 first responders and 497 civilians living in Grosse Springs itself. Fortunately, as the story goes, military assistance stepped in to assure no more radiation spread and that no more lives were lost. Video footage still exists on the internet, taken by survivors returning to salvage belongings of people who had burned in their cars for leaving just seconds too late. Those who didn't make it out of Grosse Springs perished badly. Even those who had survived the initial danger weren't safe, passing weeks later of radiation poisoning, skin sloughing off. Pets and livestock were killed and acres of beautiful Virginia old-growth forest had been raised. Fortunately, as the story goes, the danger will pass. Life will return eventually and forests will grow back. All those who died could not be replaced. Survivors were given a hefty sum of government money to try to build a new life and move on. 
Many of these survivors of Girl Springs were reluctant to speak to the media, both civilians and first responders alike. Understandably so, even years can't do the trauma associated with such a terrible loss of life. Some alleged witnesses, however, claimed that the payout was merely to buy their silence. Lead-lined coffins hide bodies very, very well. Viral videos posted on social media before technology began to fail depict scenes of violence not able to be attributed to radiation poisoning or panic. Animals were seen in the days after damaged in ways that seemed closer to genetic defects than the result of injury. Reports of wildlife that had fused or plants that had thrashed and screamed, of figures looming out of fire. A user on the conspiracy forum Truth Seekers going by 98765 in Grouse Springs made a post on March 4th of last year stating, I was at Grouse Springs. No blue light. No Cherenikov radiation. Followed five minutes later by, No Cherenikov. No water. No burst pipes. The account and subsequently the post were deleted 24 hours later. However, a second account showed up by the name of Grouse Springs Massacre, this time on the popular photo sharing site Instagram, claiming to be 98765 Grouse Springs, sending screen caps to hundreds of users with the original tweets, captioned, They deleted my account. Anyone who says they saw a regular fire there are lying. The Grouse Springs Massacre account was deleted again 24 hours later. Although this user was likely just buying into conspiracy, there was one factor that made this post notable. The image used as the account's profile picture was from Grow Springs, the day of the massacre and it had never been published before. Many groups outright rejected my attempts at contact, and others still were cold, hostile, or otherwise disinterested. Still, I persisted. There was something here, so I ran an advertisement, pooling money to run a campaign. This remained unsuccessful for months, alternating between long periods of silence and pranksters. That was until I received a phone call on my personal phone from a man that I had never spoken to before. He contacted me around 4 in the morning and I answered, blurry-eyed, glasses still tucked away on the nightstand. Cleveland residence. I heard shuffling on the other end of the line before a quiet voice said, Is this Douglas? Yes, to whom am I speaking? I'm a... My name's Pete Kitts. Saw your ad online a while ago and I could use the money if you still got it. He was so quiet that I could barely hear him, but I was instantly awake, quickly grabbing my glasses and a pen and paper to write down a time and place to meet. Peter J. Kitts, or Pete, as he styles himself, is a big guy. Not in stature, but in everything else. Pete has a big laugh, a big personality, big boots, and at the age of 30, a big gambling problem. That's why he contacted me, he said. Well, I was out of rent money for the week since I was down to the tracks all day the Sunday before, and uh, I saved your number just in case I needed something on the side. Petey had explained. 
as he showed me the paperwork proving that he indeed received his settlement money from the Grouse Springs accident. It's all gone. We ended up meeting at a hotel cafe, neither of us wanting to introduce stories of Grouse Springs to our homes. The idea still felt taboo as if we would be invoking it at our place of living, if we so much as had mentioned it there. I started my tape recorder setting it between us. Pete Kitts arrived at a local bar owned by a couple who had happened to be out of town on July 23rd, around 7pm the day of the accident. By 9.45pm, everyone who remained in the bar was dead. The fire had spread to the town proper, through the thick trees and undergrowth surrounding the power plant, and by 8.12pm, beginning to engulf the businesses and homes of the residents of Grouse Springs. Emergency services had begun moving people out as quickly as possible. Kitts himself was rescued by a civilian vehicle, a good Samaritan trying to fit as many people in as possible. Exiting the building, he could see the smoke trailing from the direction of the trees, accompanied by a smell that he described as metallic. I was in this bar, you know, nailheads right by the corner of 52nd and West, out with my buddies after work. And I'm looking, well, nothing's wrong with looking at the girls, right? As long as I'm not buying drinks for them. And my coworker Dave says to me, Why don't you buy that brunette over there a drink? I'm sitting there thinking, man, Angelica would be so pissed if I did that, so I tell him, My girlfriend, she doesn't want me doing that stuff. So then Dave says, Oh, so you're letting that little flat chest make decisions for you now. And that upset me, so I was about to say something, but then I noticed. With this, the previous the animate Pete set his jaw and looked out the window, like he was struggling not to cry. He furrowed his brows hard and put his hand on his chin. What did you notice, Pete? He swallowed before continuing, voice shaky. I noticed that brunette went real still. Not just like standing still, but real still. She wasn't even breathing. Her hair was frozen too like somebody had set her on pause right in the middle of dancing. And then there was this bulge in her stomach. It was like she was pregnant. But it hadn't been there before. And I'm staring at her and Dave tries to get my attention before he sees what I'm staring at and then he's staring at her too. And then her friends notice and they're all screaming and the music cuts off and... Nobody knows what to do because something is obviously wrong with the chick, but how are you supposed to call an ambulance when you don't even know what's happening to her? And the bulge, it starts moving, moving up, like traveling from her stomach up to her chest, and you could see her bones cracking and her friends are shaking her, trying to get her to unfreeze or wake up or whatever. And they're crying and screaming, and Dave just whispers, what the heck, man? So I called 911. Nobody answered. I think that was about the time the rest of the town was going to crap, too. So ain't nobody there to answer the phone. But I doubted that it made a difference anyway with what had happened to her. You see, that bulge just kept on growing up, up her neck. God, it was so awful. And these hands just came out of her mouth, one grab in each jaw, and... They just peeled her away, all inside out, red everywhere, 
Your guts spilling all over the floor. Smelled awful too. A few of her friends couldn't keep their stuff down. I wanted to join them. It felt like it was going on forever, her body just opening and opening and opening. And nobody could see what was inside and I was thinking, Crap, it's a face hugger. Now we're all going to split in half and die. But it was just her, man. Once all the skin and meat was on the floor, it was just that same brunette, covered in red, unfrozen. It was just her, and she was still dancing. As a collector of vintage and lost newspaper media, it is rare that my hobby takes me into the field. Much of my time is spent in small town museums, estate sales, or antique stories. In pursuit of the truth, finding out if Grouse Springs existed, if Douglas Ray Cleavon was just the construct of a creative project, I found myself in the Appalachian backwood, shovel in hand. Although there was no church and no town, I still somehow managed to find three perfect headstones, and along with them, three bodies. Even to an untrained eye through the state of decay, I could tell that something had gone deeply, terribly wrong. Horrified, I returned them to their rest and went back to my home. That night, I purchased a firearm for the first time in my entire life. You would be wise to do the same. Blast Radius, an investigation into the tragedy and cover-up of Gross Springs by Douglas Ray Cleavon Published August 2021 The story of the woman at the bar left me floored. Nobody could have predicted such a gruesome turn of events and I left the interview quickly. I had given Kitts the money that I had promised but internally, I had brushed him off as a grifter. However, this led me down a rabbit hole. How would I verify what had happened that day, outside of eyewitness accounts? This line of thought led me on a short road trip to Manassas, Virginia. Due to the number of casualties resulting from the incident at Grill Springs, many coroner's offices from across Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. were required to step in and assist in the examination and identification of bodies. Grouse Springs was considered the primary jurisdiction of the Northern Virginia office, so I figured that would be my best starting point. Luckily, it was also my last. The medical examiner herself refused to speak with me, but a young investigator who received my email decided to contact me instead. He asked to only be identified as Cole, as he felt that coming forward may potentially jeopardize his career and his safety. On his lunch break, he slipped into my vehicle, where we began our interview. He brought a manila folder with a few papers inside, and told me that they were for later. How long have you worked for the office? He kept his gaze forward as he answered the question, but smiled slightly. I've been here for five years. Most people leave after one or two so I guess you could call me a veteran. And what were your experiences in the days following June 23rd, 2016? I was only an autopsy technician at the time, he said, 
It was my first year. Talk about an introduction. We were all working 15 and 16 hour days, going nuts so that we could process the amount of decedents that we were receiving. Everybody had to wear one of those big white hazmat suits, which made the actual examination and sampling a huge pain in the butt. It was exhausting. I was terrified of radiation poisoning too. I mean, some of these bodies, man, all burned up, black, down to the bone in some places. And their faces were twisted too. Like whatever had happened to them hurt so bad that they carried it right to the second that they had died. We all had these little devices clipped to our suits called a personal dosimeter. I thought I was lucky when mine didn't indicate any significant exposure to radiation. Towards the end of the fourth day, almost everybody was stressed to the point of breaking. I guessed that I was still so green that it was all exciting almost. Like I hadn't been in the business long enough for it to really get under my skin. Yet. So that's how I ended up being pulled into an exam room with the coroner himself. By these two guys in suits that I'm sure were from some three-letter agency. To this day, I'm still not really sure who they were. Now, when I say that these next bodies had bothered me, that they were strange, I want you to understand that I don't say that lightly. I worked a case one time where the guy just seemed to drop dead in a locked hotel room. Nobody could figure it out until the pathologist noticed a laceration. It turned out some idiot was messing around with a gun in the room underneath him and shot him right in the groin. One night, I had to drive out to the middle of a parking garage to help some guys from the funeral home pick up a body. When I got there, there was a suitcase just sitting there all stained and dingy. But it stunk that sickly sweet, meaty decay smell. And the guys told me that the decedent was inside. So all three of us lifted this thing up and I guess the body had been in there for a while. And the polyester had just given and gave out along the bottom. The body sloshed out all over us. This nasty and greasy black sludge that had been stewing for who knows how long. I smelled like that suitcase for days. Anyways, my point is, none of that was worse than the three bodies that I had to look at. I thought that it was a joke at first. I mean, two guys in suits come and tell me to take my hazmat suit off and that I'm needed urgently. It sounded like a prank. But the coroner, God bless his soul, was a serious, old school type of doctor, and it just wasn't his style. He looked positively grave when he stepped into the exam room. No pun intended. The first decedent was a woman, early 20s, older than I was at the time. Here, he handed me the folder. This is a copy of the autopsy report. I technically shouldn't have this, so be careful with it. She had similar injuries to the other bodies. Burns, suspected as shrapnel injuries, that sort of thing. But there were other things. The fingers on her left hand were missing at the second joint, with marks consistent with those of human teeth. On that arm, there were wounds consistent with those of what I thought was a knife. I pointed this out to the coroner who immediately corrected me. Not a knife, he said. Not a knife. These are claw marks. Now, there are a lot of hiking trails out here. 
Every once in a while, somebody will die out in the woods and of course, animals will be attracted to them. So it's not uncommon to see a body that had been mauled by something like a black bear, for example. But what bear would be mauling people in the middle of a nuclear meltdown? Another thing, when a decedent has been sitting for a while, the body undergoes something called liver mortis. Once the heart stops pumping blood around, it all just kind of settles at the bottom from gravity. This usually takes a couple of hours, but this body had none of that. It was just all pale. Even the deep and fatty slash marks on the arm were just sitting open. After we finished the examination, we opened her up, and there wasn't any blood, nothing. Not like an injury where somebody bleeds out. It was like she never had any in the first place. Cole was wide-eyed as he recounted this, as if he could hardly believe it himself. I had no doubt that he was telling the truth. What was the body like internally? It was. She was all solid inside, like her fatted muscle had all turned to soap. We didn't even have time to think about it though, because as soon as we were done with her, we had to move on to the next one. This next decedent was an older guy who looked mostly untouched by whatever was happening at Gross Springs. The only weird thing was how light he was when we moved him onto the table. He wasn't exactly a slender dude or anything, so I almost dropped him on the floor, just because I lifted him with way more heft than I really needed. Visual examination didn't reveal much, no visible injuries, so we were thinking maybe he had died of smoke inhalation or something. Palpitation when you feel to see if there are broken bones or anything, it didn't reveal much either. It just kind of felt spongy. So we started the internal examination. Some parts were there. He had blood and fat and muscle and bones. But we go to check the lungs and they aren't there. No heart, no intestines. I would say about 90% of his organs weren't there. It was upsetting for some reason like the girl had been. It just wasn't right. But the worst part didn't happen until we went to put him back. We pulled out the icebox and sitting in the tray where the body just was, were all of his missing body parts. Perfectly arranged, just like how they would sit if they were inside of him. And they weren't there before. I don't... I, there isn't any logical way that can happen. There just isn't. So I look towards the guys in the suits and they just order us to open the guy up and put everything back in. And so that's what we did. The last guy, everything started off normal. Or as normal as an autopsy in the wake of a nuclear accident can be, I guess. I was almost relieved, but part of me knew if these guys wanted us to examine him here and now, something was going to be wrong. And there was. The cause of death seemed pretty obvious, due to the extent of injury, but we were told that we needed to remove the brain for sampling. The brain itself seemed normal, but the inside of the skull was hollow and dark. There isn't really a lot of space in there in a regular body, but this guy's skull was shadowed inside like a tunnel. One of the guys in suits handed the coroner a flashlight. The coroner was old guard, the kind of guy who didn't make jokes in the job, the kind of guy who carried a flask filled with a scotch around, 
that he would sip regardless of who he thought would see. But when he took that flashlight and looked in that guy's head, he smiled. Look, he told me. I didn't really see anything, just shadow and a mess of membranes and veins that stretched impossibly on past the beam of light. Don't you see it? I didn't see anything. It's beautiful, he told me. Here, hold this, he said. He handed me the flashlight and before I could say anything, he put one arm inside of the guy's head up to the elbow. Just looking at it made me feel sick. One time, I broke my finger and it ended up at a 90 degree angle, in a way that a limb shouldn't bend. I had to close my eyes, not because it hurt too bad or anything, but because I just hated looking at it. It shouldn't have been possible. Watching that man stick his arm in that guy's skull gave me the same pit in my stomach. And the coroner wasn't smiling anymore, but his eyes were still all happy and open. He slid in up to his shoulder and it made a nasty sucking sound, and it was like he didn't have a care in the world. Honestly, it was the most relaxed I think he had been in years. I was backing away at this point, but he was waving me over like we were at a dang pool party and he wanted me to get in. Fight or flight response isn't really adequate in a situation where you're panicking. There's another one that people add sometimes. Freeze, and that's exactly what I did, as soon as I was out of his reach. Soon his other arm went in and his head and the rest of his body, just into this guy's head. The hole didn't stretch or anything to accommodate him, and he didn't get crushed or anything either. He just went right in. I watched his feet go into this impossible tunnel like he was a cave diver. And then he was gone and I never saw him again. The men in suits ushered me out quickly after that. Ushered is a nice way to put it actually. They basically had to throw me by the seat of my pants because whatever they were saying to me, I just couldn't process it. I didn't even do any kind of cleanup. Just a push out of the door and that was that. They told everyone that he had taken his own life. Just couldn't do it anymore from the stress or the alcoholism or whatever. But I know what happened. I was expecting a knock on the door for a few weeks, thinking that some guys would take me away and that I would disappear too. It never happened though. Obviously, I guess they just figured that I wouldn't talk about it. Or if I did, nobody would believe me. But I found these records. He thumped the folder with the back of a finger. And I'm talking to you right now. You can keep these if you want. Do whatever with them. I spent a lot of time being afraid and I still am, but I guess now I'm more afraid of what would happen to those people than being disappeared by some agency. I found out recently that some people from this office were told to exhume the bodies for some reason, but when they opened the coffins, the bodies weren't there. I thanked Cole for his time and he returned to work. I didn't open the folder until I returned to my office and when I did, it appeared to verify everything that he had said. I was closer to finding out the truth about what had happened at Grove Springs, but I felt no closer to finding out what the truth might mean. What had caused such bizarre phenomena? Was there really a nuclear meltdown at all? What had killed so many people? 
and continued to kill people after the event had ended. It was only through a final coincidence, one last stroke of luck, that I was even able to begin to put the pieces together. I woke up to a rain of flesh this morning. Fist-sized chunks of meat fell on my bed, red sprinkling my blankets and body. Someone does not appreciate that I'm writing this down, sharing my experiences, letting you read the words published by Douglas Ray Cleveland and the brave individuals who helped him bring Gross Springs to light. This will be my final word to you, dear reader, before I hide myself in some deep place where I may be safe. Take care. Blast Radius, an investigation into the tragedy and cover-up of Gross Springs. By Douglas Ray Cleveland. Published August 2021. I received an envelope in my mailbox the day after I spoke with Cole. It had no address and when I asked my neighbors, nobody could recall seeing anybody near my home that day. Inside was a typed letter along with a video cassette. The author of the letter included a note that I do not release this video publicly, so her identity is not revealed, but she has permitted me to include screen caps. I watched the video in its entirety and have no doubt of its ferocity. The event at Gross Springs was not a nuclear accident. I will let the letter speak for itself. Mr. Cleveland, Project Skipjack was a power plant, that much is true. The city of Gross Springs did get its electricity from whatever they were doing down on the bowels of that building known to the public as the Gross Springs Nuclear Power Plant. It wasn't my job to understand how, though. I was just there to provide security. Keep people out, they told me. Keep people in, too, if it came to that. I had been on details like this before. They would tell you just enough that you would get a feel for what to do in an emergency. You learned early on not to ask too many questions. Things were bad before June 23rd, but the public didn't know about it. Way back when the power plant had first opened in 2008, a kid went missing from a neighborhood close by. He was only four or five, the same age as my son at the time. Later, sometimes people would see flashing lights in the woods or cigar-shaped objects hovering in the sky. The higher-ups did a real good job of covering it all up. A scientist had been killed too in the laboratory. I didn't have to work that cleanup, but my buddies who did came back up a bit shell-shocked. One of them requested a transfer and after that, but it wasn't allowed to happen. He didn't survive the accident. It started in the afternoon and we were told that's when the technicians would rotate shifts, so we would know to be extra alert. The main lights went off and the emergency light system came on. The alarms didn't start yet though. They wanted a way to see if I could get it back under control. This was relayed to me and my partner and I'll call him Delta over by radio by the head technician. No worry yet, they said. By the time the fire started, the alarm still hadn't gone off, so we radioed back. But there was no word. Someone I didn't recognize came into the security building and told us that it was code red out there, and the entire security team needed to be deployed to the plant, where the main power core was contained. We weren't told what it was, and just that we needed to help survivors put out the fire, 
and that under no circumstances could anyone found at the plant leave without checking their identification, even in the middle of a meltdown. If they didn't have ID, we were told to kill them. We got suited up. Our core team was Delta and other people on the detail I'll call Gamma, Beta, and Epsilon. I had body armor, a sidearm, a knife, and a helmet. I was also tasked with keeping record of the accident on behalf of the researchers so my helmet had a camera. Our fire suppression team went out ahead of us. They were successful in putting the fire out here, so I had no idea how it ended up spreading to the rest of the city. It initially played out like a standard search and rescue. Many of the rooms were hollowed out by the fire, charred black, smoky. It smelled strange though like somebody had been spraying hair product. There was a lot of searching but not a lot of rescuing. We cleared about three rooms before there was any sign of life. Down the hallway there is a figure. It was small and it looked like it was coated in dark grease or oil or something. I couldn't tell if it was facing us or facing away because whatever was dripping off of it was so thick that its head was completely obscured. Epsilon called out, Hey, you there. But whoever it was, it didn't respond. They just ran off, feet slapping against the floor, down some random hallway. I wanted to pursue, but Delta got me back on track. Remember, he said over the earpiece, we gotta get to the core. I nodded and we kept going. There was ambient noise as we got closer, like a crowd of people talking and laughing at a party in a nearby room. Sometimes lights would go on and off in other rooms and we would look and nothing would be there. About halfway down the staircase to the basement level where the core was, one of the walls had burst. A long skinny arm reached through a hole and started groping around with an oversized hand. It was burnt to a crisp. But whatever it was, it was reaching excitedly like a kid, getting the last skittle out of a bag. Gamma and Epsilon fired at it, but they either didn't hit it or didn't care, because it picked Gamma up and it squeezed, before anybody could help. The thing played with his limp body through the hole in the wall, tapping Gamma's feet against the floor and shaking him up and down so his arms were flapping around. And I swear to God when that hand squeezed him to death, the only thing that came out of Gamma's body was strawberry ice cream. We ran before the rest of whatever the heck that thing was decided that it wanted to grab anybody else too, sprinting down the stairs. Dark splotches were smeared on the wall. Sometimes there was an arm or a leg sticking out. At one point, we had passed a human face lodged in the wall, which just wept and wept. I don't remember if it was Epsilon or if it was Delta that put a bullet in its head. The last flight of stairs were too damaged to access, so we had to cross the first floor to find the alternate staircase on the other side of the building. I was hoping maybe we would actually find somebody that we could help, but I was wrong. It sounded like people were having a conversation all around us, not one that made any sense. The voices were cackling, howling, whimpering. The sharp, tangy smell from earlier was becoming overpowering. It felt like somebody was touching the bottom of my boots. Epsilon turned to me to say something, but before he could, his tongue fell out of his mouth and onto the ground. 
and then his fingers started falling off. His eyes drooped out of his head. He was thrashing and moaning. Blood made the floor slick enough that he slipped and fell. I knew it was Delta that took the shot this time. Epsilon didn't die though. He just kept falling apart all over the floor. Delta and I kept going dutifully forward. Maybe we could stop whatever this was if we just made it there. Noise from Epsilon's collapse must have gotten attention because back near the entrance to the first floor, a door creaked open. It was so loud that Delta and I turned around to look. It was a woman. She peeked her eyes out from the now open doorway. They were open manically wide, the whites visible even at a distance. She disappeared for a moment and after a pause, slunk out of the doorway. She was grinning or grimacing maybe, it was hard to tell. Her expression was in lining up with the sheer unhinged malice she seemed to exude. Shoulders slung low, head facing up. I could tell that if she got her hands on us, then that would be it. It was me, it couldn't be me, but it was. She wasn't wearing any clothes and every mole on my body, every crease in my skin, even my C-section scar, were all perfectly mirrored on hers. Slowly she approached. Behind her it seemed like she left a shadow, it was solid almost. A faint afterimage doubled over where she had just been. She waved when she saw us staring. We were in shock. That's the only way I could justify it to myself when Delta waved back. The woman went into a sprint, running towards us at a speed that I've never been capable of achieving. I fired my sidearm and saw that I had shot her straight through the forehead. She stopped for a moment, a line of after images slinging back behind her, before they snapped together and she was left wholly unharmed. We just had to beat her to the stairs. We just had to get to the core. Delta and I turned and started moving as fast as we could towards the staircase. But she got closer and closer, and I could tell that she was laughing through her clenched teeth. Right at the staircase, she was on us. I looked and she was there and I could feel her hot breath on my neck. I didn't realize I was doing it, but my feet were still moving and taking me down towards the basement. She was tearing apart Delta with her teeth. He didn't even scream, just looked at me like big eyes like he didn't know what was going on. As she pulled a loop after loop of intestines out of his torso. The basement was horrible. Bodies swung on hooks from the ceiling. Some animals were alive, dragging itself on the ground while it bleated pathetically. I moved down from the catwalk to the floor where the animals scooted past me before sinking into the floor. Charcoal bodies hung suspended in the air like they were held by an invisible string. Some of them were reaching out and grasping for help, and some were curled up, comforting themselves. Towards the middle of the room sat four giant batteries sticking out from the floor. There were four of them, all inscribed with some language that I didn't even recognize. Connected by cords, there was a seat between them all. It resembled an electric chair with a helmet and restraint straps but the restraints had clearly been snapped. I was taking this all in when I heard the woman come into the basement. There was nothing that I could do. Whatever had done this, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't even begin to comprehend it. 
I took a deep breath before running to hide. There were pipes everywhere and I tried to find some that made a corner small. I contorted my body and compressed myself down into the fetal position. Tears streamed down my face but I was silent. My son would wonder why mommy didn't come home. Or maybe she would come home and it would be whatever the hack had just taken out Delta. Found you, she whispered. It felt like four hands were scratching me and digging into my skin, tearing through my clothes and ripping chunks out of my body. And then it felt like six hands, twelve hands, eight hands. I was kicking and screaming, too panicked to do anything other than try to protect my face. She was laughing and it sounded like a room full of people laughing. Maybe I started laughing, I don't know. My eyes were screwed shut and I could tell that I was bleeding and I just wanted it to be over. But something made her stop. She pulled away from me and I felt a cold little hand in my face. It was filmy and greasy but I leaned into the relief the coolness provided and sobbed. It pulled away, I heard wet footsteps walk away from me. And then I was standing at the entrance to the power plant. It was the next day and I was covered in red and some black substance that reeked like garbage, but I was alive. I collapsed on the ground and I radioed for assistance. I was given a significant amount of cash and a medical retirement. The first thing that I did with my newfound wealth was buy a house on the west coast and get the heck out of there. Whatever was in that power plant, whatever force had killed all those people, it was still out there as far as I knew. Nobody stopped it that day. The incident at Grouse Springs only ended because it wanted to end. Do you understand that? I told my employers that my camera broke. I'm not sure why they believed me, but they did. I kept the cassette. At the time, I wasn't sure why, but now I realize. I need people to know what happened. Good luck. In the early 1940s, the U.S. State Department along with the Army deliberately infected prisoners in Illinois with malaria in hopes of studying the effects on the human body. In 1943, the U.S. government conducted what is known as the Philadelphia Experiment, using unified fuel theory in the effort to make a ship completely undetectable. This ended poorly and many sailors aboard were left with PTSD as a result and one man lost his hand. Following this, the US government continued experimenting with magnetic fields and projects at Montauk using the underprivileged as test subjects. In 1950, the US Navy sprayed an allegedly harmless bacteria over San Francisco in an event called Operation Sea Spray. It turned out the disease caused pneumonia-like symptoms and many people became ill. Between 1960 and 1971, the Department of Defense paid to irritate cancer patients to record data on how high levels of radiation affect the human body. These are just a handful of examples the United States government has experimented on its own citizens, which were only revealed through the Freedom of Information Act. It is likely that there have been countless more times the United States has subjected civilians to unethical scientific research well into the modern day. I believe that the alleged paraphysical force powering the city of Gross Springs was one of these times, resulting in one of the most dangerous industrial accidents of all time. Information on Project Skipjack needs to be publicly released. The government needs to be held accountable for this tragedy. 
it is unacceptable to subject an entire town to understudied, highly lethal physical forces. And it is time for this matter held secret and the dark to come into light. We the citizens of the United States of America demand honesty. As a collector of newspapers, I have a vast collection of articles on missing persons. I'm not sure if it's a coincidence that a young boy went missing here in our world in 2008. In the neighborhood located near the woods in which I found the bodies that Cole described as vanishing. I have been seeing lights recently near my home. In my dreams, I see her face laughing at me. She's saying something, but I cannot understand. Douglas Ray Cleavon's diligent research and commitment to the truth is commendable. However, in his analysis of the events at Grove Springs, I believe he made a grave mistake. This could not be dismissed as an industrial accident. The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Montauk, the testing on American civilians conducted in the past, these events weren't about discovering new power sources. They were about developing a weapon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm a ranger with the Forestry Service. I have some disturbing stories to tell. Written by Luke Hemingway. The day I got the call informing me that I would be accepted for the new ranger post was the best day of my life. I had always had a fondness for the outdoors. I'm more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. So give me the vast forests and dense woodlands over the hustle and bustle of a busy city any day of the week. But the image that I had in my head of a new life as a USFS ranger is very different to what I have encountered out here. I've decided to type up my experiences up until now, because I'm currently six days into a three-month post in a fire watchtower, and already things have gotten well, disturbing to say the least. I've decided to make a diary of what I've encountered and experienced, mainly for two reasons. One, so I have something to keep my mind occupied on these quiet, dark nights in my tower. Two, in case for whatever reason something happens to me, then I want people to know what happened. I sound like a rattled, paranoid rookie, right? Like maybe the creepy sounds that the forest make at night in the constant isolation has already taken over my mind and pushed me one step closer to insanity. Well, maybe that is the case. 
Or maybe it's because something really weird is happening in these woods. I've heard some pretty messed up things in my brief time out here, but having recently found myself in this tower, I've come across something that has made everything I've heard and seen that exceptionally more disturbing. But hey, listen to what I've encountered up until now and you can be the judge. As it stands, I'm a ranger stationed in one of the largest forests in the northwest portion of America. Like I'm talking miles and miles of dense woodland, managed by the forestry service and more specifically, a handful of ranger district offices, one of which is where I'm stationed at. I mainly work the trails making sure that no hikers or campers need assistance, but I also have taken part in a search and rescue op and like I said, I'm currently assigned to a watchtower for three months, while the FS recruits a more permanent ranger for the role. As for my name, you can call me David, and I'm 28 years old. The day I arrived in town where the ranger's office was, I booked myself a motel, a dainty budget-looking place that look was in keeping with the town's gritty yet rustic aesthetic. It was a cold late autumn morning when I had arrived. It was below two degrees and a misty low fog had engulfed the quiet town. My induction was scheduled for 9am the next morning at the office. I would then have the weekend to get acquainted with the surrounding area and I would be picked up in a minibus on Monday morning at 6am and be taken to a one week retreat at a large national park where I would receive my basic ranger training. I handed my driver's license and $100 to the elderly man behind the motel's front desk. He asked in what I felt was a forced friendly tone. What brought me to these parts? I informed him with a mirrored tone that I was here on business, that I had been accepted for a job and was scheduled for a meeting at the head office of the local national park, before heading out of town to a retreat at another forest location for basic training so I would only need the room for a couple of days. His face seemed to drop just slightly before he said something that I found rather disconcerting. He said, Another one, huh? I looked up sharply from putting my wallet back in my pocket and I faced the man with a confused look on my face. I asked him what he meant. It seems like every three months I get some chirpy young man such as yourself coming in here telling me that he needs a room because he's going to be working up in those woods. He responds with an insinuating expression on his face as he places my money in the till and hands me my room key. I put it down to the fact that the local forestry service were just heavily recruiting for the up and coming season. I thanked the man for the key and I asked him for the Wi-Fi code. The lack of a worded answer and a simple shrug of his shoulders hammered home the fact that I was a long ways away from Long Island. I entered my room, placed my case on the bed, and decided to have a drive into town to get some much-needed food. As I drove through the rural, unincorporated town, I kept my eyes out for a cafe or a restaurant. On one side of the road were local businesses, mainly camping supplies and bait shops with the odd grocery store thrown in. I decided to pull over and grab some new hiking boots. Mine had seen better days and I wanted to make a good impression at my induction tomorrow. I pulled the car over to the side and I hopped out. As I made my way up the front steps of the stores, I caught a glimpse of a small notice board on the porch window. 
Handyman left cards, homeowners advertised rooms for rent, and so on. But what caught my eye just before I had entered the store were the three missing person posters. I took a quick step back and did a double take. I examined the posters. Three late teens. They looked like college kids to be honest. Two guys and a girl. Apparently being missing for the last five weeks after they were last seen heading off into the woods on a weekend camping trip. A bear attack most likely. I thought to myself. Yeah, that's it. I walked into the camping store and found a pair of thick black hiking boots that were fit for purpose and I took them to the counter. There was a large, mid-aged man sporting denim overalls and a red and white baseball cap. The potato chips that he was munching on as he watched a sports game on a handheld TV were gathering in his unkempt beard. I had to clear my throat a few times just to get him to serve me. And even then, he had one eye on the game as he rang up my boots and I made small talk. So, uh, they found those kids yet? I asked. Nah, nor any of the others. He answered, still concentrating on the game. Sorry, the others? I probed. People go missing all the time in these woods. Ain't nothing new. A lot of forest out there after all. He responded dismissively. What? And they're never found alive? Or never found at all? I asked, disconcerted. The ones they find usually explains where they went. A bear attack, mountain lion, exposure, but the rest? Nah, if they don't find them within a week, they don't find them at all. Lots of folk around here say it's a copycat killer, but I don't listen to none of that. The man replied as he bagged up my boots and handed me my purchase. A copycat killer? I asked, confused. The man scoffed at me. You ain't from around these parts, are you, kid? He asked with a smile, like my answer just told him everything about me. I just shook my head with a dumbfounded look on my face. The man chuckled, getting out of his seat and walking to the other side of the counter as he spoke. 1963 was the year. George Munson was the name. He exclaimed, picking up a picture frame off the wall. Inside was a newspaper clipping. He slid it across the counter to me and I examined it. The headline read, Monster Munson sentenced to death. With a small caption underneath explained that he had been found guilty for the deaths of five children. Yep, Georgie was the local oddball. Or so my daddy told me. He said as I looked into the eyes on the mugshot of a man in his early 20s. He was one of those people who may have aged physically, but he stopped aging around 10 to be honest. Special needs and all that. His mama would take him up into the woods on hikes and stuff. One day his mama comes running back into town wailing, saying Georgie had been taken by somebody in the woods. The man told me. So what happened? I asked, curiously, wondering how the story the man was telling me had led to the article in front of me. Well, the townspeople along with the rangers went looking in those here woods. Five weeks and not a trace of him. He leans in closer. Then all of a sudden, boom, the kid just comes wading out of the forest like nothing ever happened. He informed me with an incredulous look on his face. You're kidding. Straight up. 
Anyways, Georgie's mama was elated to have her little boy back. While I say little boy, kid was about 6'5". A big son of a gun. Yeah, but what about the murders? I snapped, impatiently interrupting the man as he began to digress. Oh, well, from the way my daddy told a young Georgie was somewhat withdrawn after he came home. He didn't speak, he didn't eat. His mama invited a group of kids from the neighborhood over one day. They were younger in Georgie, but given his limitations, she felt that they would have played well together. The man's expression turned from playfully animated to haunted and vacant. Georgie's mama was speaking with her neighbor when the group of kids in Georgie went missing. He stated, Missing? I pressed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Few of the townsfolk witnessed Georgia leading those kids into the woods. It looked like they were having fun singing nursery rhymes, skipping along. Just kids doing stuff. But thing is, those fun-having kids, they never made it home. He informed me gravely. What happened to them? I dared to ask. The man leaned in closer than he had throughout the whole exchange. His search party went looking, found them all mangled and butchered. Absolutely unspeakable acts of evil inflicted upon them. There's rumors that some of the search and rescue vets threw up when they found what was left of those kids. But six people went into those woods that day, and they only found five bodies. Georgie was still missing. Where was he? I asked curiously. Well, no one knew. Until the day that big Georgie Munson just walked out of those woods again, covered head to toe in the blood of those kids. The man's brow was high, letting the weight of his words hang in the air for a few seconds. So, did he say why he did it? I asked, rather befuddled. Well, that's the thing. He said he didn't. I mean, the kid was two bananas short of a full bunch. I don't really know if he knew how much trouble he was in, but my daddy said his mama would be screaming at folks in the street claiming, her boy didn't do this. And you know what the weird thing is. The man leaned close as if making sure that no one could hear, despite the store being empty. I leaned in too, gesturing for him to drop the punchline. During those police interviews, Georgie claimed that he never came back from the woods the first time. The man revealed, slapping his hand on the counter as an exclamation point. Weird, huh? Indeed, I muttered. But, of course he was going to say that. Kid was facing the death penalty. Heck, it makes for a good story around the fire, though. Enjoy your camping. Best advice, stick to the trails. The man suggests with a friendly smile. I chuckled. Well, actually, I'll be working as a ranger in the forest. I responded and jovially. The man's face dropped, before awkwardly clearing his throat and wishing me a good day. We never made eye contact again after that. The man went back to his sports game and I left the store. As I dropped my weight into the driver's seat of my car and let out an anxious sigh, I started the engine and I pulled off the curb, heading deeper into the town in search of a meal. The meek-looking village had a dull and gray feel to it as the late and cold autumn had well and truly set in. I spotted a potential source of food out in the corner of the crossroads. 
and when I drove up to the front and read, Rose's Diner on the front of the building, I couldn't have exited the car quick enough. I jogged up the steps, opened up the door and took a seat in a booth. A waitress who in my humble opinion should have retired a good six years ago came over to take my order. What'll it be, hon? She asked in a strong and horsey accent. A big smoker judging by her smile in the current state of her vocal cords. Um, can I get pancakes and, um, a side order of bacon too? Uh, coffee? Sure, thank you. I closed my menu and handed it to the waitress. As she poured the coffee into my mug, she looked me up and down. You, uh, new in town? She asked curiously. Having not recognized me in what was a low populated town. Yes, ma'am, I'm gonna be a. Uh, I hesitated, worrying that my honest answer would have the same effect as it did on the store owner. Fishing, yeah, I'm gonna be fishing in the lake. Came all the way from Long Island for this trip. Heard a lot about this place. I remarked, putting enthusiasm into my answer. The waitress seemed upbeat. Oh, well, all good, I hope. I done lived here my whole darn life. Opened up this Donna in 84 after my daddy died and left me some money. I'm Rose, she revealed, pointing at the Rose's Diner badge woven into the uniform. Oh, I see. Well, it's a lovely establishment that you have here. I'm David, I assured, a little more genuine this time. Oh, well, just wait until you try the pancakes. She bantered as she finished writing down my order and heading off into the kitchen. I warmed my hands on the hot cup and turned to look at the wonderful scenery on the other side of the window glass. I stared over the rooftops of the town and into the fields and hills, admiring how the vast mass of trees and woodland simply seemed to take over the earth and completely smothered the mountains. I smiled and knowing that was where I belonged. My gaze dropped back to the street as I saw a mother pushing her two twins in a stroller. As she passed, I noticed two of the eight-strong collection of telegraph poles and streetlights had paper attached to them. Upon a squint of my eyes, I made out one word in red. Missing. I couldn't make out the images below the word missing, but I could see enough to know one thing. They were the same people in the posters that were outside of the equipment store. In fact, they were both male and were much, much younger. The sound of a plate hitting the table in front of me snapped me out of my daze and I turned to see Rose dishing out my food. One order of pancakes with a side of bacon. And here's your syrup. Can I get you anything else? Rose asked as she topped off my mug. Uh, no, that'll be fine, thank you, I assured her. She smiles and wishes me a nice meal and turns to go back to the kitchen. Hey, Rose. I whispered at her, grabbing her attention. She turned back to face me, tilting her head back. Yes, hon. Say, I'm a bit of a sucker for the paranormal. I love going on ghost hunts and the like. Not many places with the history and lore back home, but come on. You've lived around here all your life. I've heard a few urban legends, but come on. What's the stories around here? I asked with an encouraging tone and a cheeky smile. Oh, honey, if you like that spooky stuff, then you come to the right place. She claims with a chuckle. 
Go on, I mean. I heard the story about Charlie Munson, was it? Oh, you mean Georgie Munson, honey. She corrected me with a smile. Yeah, a lot of folks around here to this day say Georgie didn't kill those youngins. They say that it was one of those doppelgangers, but believe me when I say that local legend Small Fry. You ever heard of the Black Elk Witch? Or all the legends of the Blood Moon Cult that live up in the mountains? She asked, leaning in and resting her elbows on the edge of the table. No, I haven't heard of those. Well, a long time ago, back when my daddy was younger than you, there was a woman, her name was Elizabeth Wells, lived around here in the 1910s. Complete hermit and a total whack job. Devil worship and witchcraft, you name it. Well, at 45, after the town got sick of her, she was banished and she went to live in a house in the middle of the woods. People paid her no mind after that until one day after 15 years, she comes back into the village totally naked, as well as filthy, haggard, and hairy. People are shocked and disgusted. Stands on the steps of the church and proceeds to cast a curse over the town. Once again, she's chased back into the forest and up into the mountains, like an animal. Five years go by with no more sightings of Mrs. Wells. People assume she died of starvation or something. But that was until suddenly, all the townspeople's kids started going missing. One by one. After five years and none of the kids ever being found, the townspeople's head up into the woods to find Miss Wells after assuming that she was the culprit. They find her house and scream for her to come out. She claims their innocence out of the upstairs window and the townspeople start to believe her. That was until one of the townsfolk spots one of their missing kids' shoes in the leaves near the porch. That was all they needed to know. They kicked her door, but it doesn't open. So they break her window and start pouring gasoline into her house. One of them lights a mash and woof. Her hand gestures imitate a large flame exploding into the air. Jesus, what happened to her? I asked with curiosity. Legend goes they heard her wailing in the house, screeching and squealing as the flames torched her body. The town sheriff was one of the parents of the missing kids. He covered up the attack as an accidental fire. They searched the house and found the basement had been relatively unharmed. There was evidence that Mrs. Wells had been keeping the kids in the basement. She had done terrible things to them in some sort of ritualistic act. There was witchcraft paraphernalia, occult symbols, and also bloody prints all over the place, as well as signs that she had been eating the remains. Sheriff conspired with the fire department to chalk the fire up to the flames that she had used to cook the bodies, spilling out under the wood floor of the house. I guess it was a different time back then. None of those forensic types to say any different. She said with a shrug of her shoulders. Good God, that's terrible, I said. Yeah, they tore the place down a year after her death. But then ten years after the fire, there was this hiker called Justin Moffat, who ventured up into those woods and wandered off the trail. He was never seen again, and people begin to say that he wandered too close to the Wells house, and the ghost of Elizabeth Wells had killed him, just like she had killed the youngins. After the investigation was closed, there was a group of three who went searching for Justin by themselves. They went missing too. 
So now the story of the Black Elk Witch is one of those stories the townsfolk tell their kids. So they do as they're told and go, go wandering off alone. Don't talk to strangers and go to bed on time. You get the idea. So, the story is a myth. I asked, confused, desperate for clarification. Well, my daddy was born after the fire when it all happened. But he said his daddy and daddy before him swore Elizabeth Wells did those things to those kids and that she was killing the hikers. But like I said, could be just a scary story to keep the kids in line. It certainly did me. Rose remarked with a giddy chuckle. I wasn't so amused, but I tried not to show it. Um, yeah, and you mentioned a cult too. I asked apprehensively. Oh, yeah, now I can't speak it to myself, but there were a lot of stories people used to talk about. In the late 60s, people would talk about a group of people who worshipped the same dark forces that Elizabeth Wells did. Say they went to live out in the deep back forest up in the mountains. They say they're out there still. Lurking and stalking lost hikers to use in their rituals and sacrifices to the Black Elk Witch. Her words hung heavy in the air as she made intense eye contact with me for a few seconds, but slapping my shoulder and bursting into laughter. Oh, don't worry, darling, it's just some spooky tales that people like to tell. No one's ever seen the so-called cult. It's just another spooky tale to bring up in paranormal enthusiasts such as yourself. Enjoy your meal now before it gets cold. And with that, she departed, leaving me with my thoughts and my pancakes. Thankfully, the food was delicious and I left a nice tip for Rose and gave her a friendly wave as I left. Hopefully, I would see her again. As I headed to my car, I took a detour to examine the posters that I had seen earlier. The first one was a young boy named Dennis Weaver, age 13, last seen on a hiking trip with their family. Parents woke up in the morning to find him not at his tent. The poster was dated five weeks ago. I took a photo on my phone and headed down to the other and did the same. I headed back to my motel where I called my cell provider and purchased an internet add-on for my package. I pulled my laptop out and began to search the web. I typed in the name of the town that I was in and added the keyword missing persons. I was perplexed when I saw nothing of the sort coming up on my web search. I typed in Dennis Weaver and the town's name and I hit search. Nothing. I went on my phone and pulled up the picture of the other missing poster. I looked at it, another young boy, this one probably around 15. Chad Mitchell, another one who had gone on a hike with some friends. He had stepped off the trail in the night, likely to take a leak, I presumed. He's never been seen since. I typed his name into the search bar and once again, I was puzzled to see no articles about his disappearance either. For whatever reason, it seemed like the town was trying to keep the investigations in-house. Why? I had no idea. I decided to do one last search. I typed in Elizabeth Wells and the town's name into the bar and I hit enter. The top article caught my eye. It was nothing more than a sort of urban legend wiki but the title was The Black Elk Witch. I clicked on it. A horrific sketch was the main image that sat below the title. It was of Elizabeth Wells, aka the so-called Black Elk Witch. 
Her hair was so wild and unkempt, I couldn't help but compare her to Medusa. Her limbs were stretched out in a crucifix position. She was drawn without clothing but shaded in places to represent the muck and hair on her body. On her back were what seemed to be rags that resembled a type of cape. Her face was drawn with zero beauty, bordering on contorted into anger and deformed in malice, as these sketches of flames danced on her flesh. A chill ran down my spine, as the crude pencil dots for pupils seemed to stare right into my soul. I read the article and realized the story fit the exact rendition that Rose had given. Although there were a few different versions, one of which she had drowned in the lake by the townspeople and the other where they had nailed her to a crucifix and tied it to a tree, leaving her out in the winter to freeze. But other than those variants, the story remained the same. I closed the laptop, deciding that I needed a good night's sleep and didn't fancy waking up in a cold sweat. The next day, I headed to the district office for forestry service, prepared to meet my employers and coworkers for the first time in person. I stepped into the office and gave my name to the ranger on the front desk. I gave my name and she quickly informed me that the head ranger was waiting for me in his office. I went through and knocked on the door that I was directed to. Come in. A commanding voice yelled through the wood. I obeyed and entered the room. Behind a desk, filling out some paperwork, was a stern-looking man. I could tell from his salt-and-pepper stubble and his no-nonsense haircut that he had some sort of military background. Hi, I'm Dave, I said, extending my hand. Dave, pleased to meet you. The man said, grabbing my hand firmly and shaking it. Bill. Nice to meet you, Bill. Nice to have another New Yorker around here, to be quite honest. Some of these guys are so northeast that they make me sound like Tony Soprano, you know. He said with a soft chuckle. We shared a laugh and I immediately felt more at ease. So, that office liked you the best out of all the video interviews. Now David, I'm gonna be honest. Picking recruits isn't really my purview, but training them and weeding them out definitely is. You understand me? He asked, an intimidating stare piercing my soul. I hear you, sir, loud and clear. I assured him, trying to stay firm. A tense silence hung in the air for a brief moment, while he assessed my demeanor a little further. Hmm, you seem like a good kid, David. Just follow your training and do as I tell you and you'll make a good addition to the team. He said, fumbling in his desk drawer and he pulled out a stack of papers. Here's your starter pack and contract. Plus information on the training retreat that you're heading to Monday. Sign where the X's are, he instructed, as he slid the papers across and handed me a pen. I filled in the paperwork as Bill observed me some more. Hey, can I ask you a question? I asked cautiously. Shoot. Do you all um, get many missing persons around here? Bill scoffed. It's the woods, kid. There are mountain lions, bears, wolves. We try to tell everybody to stick to the trails, but a lot of people think they know better, you know. <laughs> What's the matter, kid? Are you having doubts? You think the big bad wolves are going to get you out there? He poked questions at me teasingly, until suddenly he narrowed his eyes and looked at me with a little more suspicion. 
unless somebody's been getting in your head. Who you been talking to? He demanded to know. His switching attitude caught me off guard. I fumbled an answer. What? No. No. No one. I mean, I went into town yesterday and I saw a lot of the posters up. Just seems like a lot of them for such a small community. I responded in a desperate, apologetic tone. Bill seemed to relax. Well, you know these small town types always think they know the woods better than us. The sheriff's department is made up of two on-call guys. They don't know what it's like to listen to authority and order. They do what they want and don't listen to our advice. And then, when the crap hits the proverbial fan and they get eaten by freaking Yogi and his pals, people might want to make up some boogeyman stories, but it's just the woods, kid. It's a dangerous place. And that's why the government made the dafts. But people still think they know better and they always will. So yeah, to answer your question, we get a lot of missing people. <laughs> Don't worry though. As a part of your basic training, you'll be shown search and rescue techniques. Well great, I can't wait. I exclaimed, feeling a little better about Bill's explanation. <laughs> so young and so full of optimism. You remind me of myself. 30 years ago. Bill said with a sorrowful chuckle. I smiled and handed him these signed forms. I was officially a forest ranger. Bus will be here Monday. Be here at 5.30. It's leaving at 6. You should be in Denver by 2. Training starts Tuesday morning. You'll be back here Friday night. By then, we should have your accommodation arranged. So you can pick the keys up when you're back. It's been a pleasure, David. I look forward to working with you. Bill exclaimed, offering yet another firm handshake from his rock of a hand. I left the office and headed to Rose's for another batch of her delicious pancakes. The bus pulled up at the Rocky Mountains National Park on time, bar a few minute delay. We exited the bus and made our way to the visitor center. The rangers that I traveled with were all fairly new, no more than a year into their positions. They had received on-site basic training, but we were all going to be taking this advanced course, which would teach us some SNR techniques, as well as fire watching and climbing training too. I had gotten to know them on the bus ride, swapping the stories from our lives up until this point. Jeff, Pete, Richard, and Daniel, all great guys. We were excited to get trained up and hear all the awesome stories from the veterans. The retreat was awesome. Team building games, trust exercises, search and rescue missions, hikes, everything. That four days was probably the most fun that I had had in my entire life. The best part though was sitting around the campfire at nighttime, drinking beer and swapping stories. Hearing all the seniors and vets talk about their experiences as forest rangers, it blew my mind. Successful rescues, animal sightings, criminal investigations. I was enthralled. But suddenly the conversation turned to the strangest things seen when on the job. Now, none of these guys were from our jurisdiction. But nevertheless, they were unsettling to say the least. There were three that stood out and I'll do my best to recount them as I remember them being told. The first was a senior ranger who worked at this park, the Rockies. 
He was asked what was the most haunting search and rescue mission he had worked on. This was what he said. It has to be the disappearance of this kid back in 06. I was a rookie at the time stationed at Crater Lake National Park. I was shadowing one of the seniors there. Guy taught me everything I knew. Seen it all type of guy. He's retired now, but anyway, I digress. A call came in from the VC that a family had been camping up in the hills and were making their way back down the trail to their car. At some point, they had lost sight of their youngest son. They assumed that he had just stopped to tie his laces or stepped off the trail to take a leak, but no, they couldn't find him anywhere. Dad was trying to keep a cool head while the mother was totally losing it. But when we got there, I could tell that they were both just as frantic. The dude just hit it a little better. Anyway, we get there and do a preliminary search of the nearby area and we find nothing. I mean no sign, no tracks. Even the dogs didn't pick up his scent. We questioned the parents and they said that he was lagging at the back of the group due to his legs being tired. Why they didn't keep this 8 year old where they could see him is beyond me. But we just chalked it up to complacency and tiredness. They said they looked back one minute and he was there and then they looked back 20 seconds later and he wasn't. Naturally, after we didn't find him in the nearby area, the police got involved because it was a suspected abduction. But I swear to God, me and my partner, our search and rescue team, the volunteers police, we all searched for days with absolutely no sign of this kid whatsoever. We must have covered 30 miles in each direction. Obviously, after 10 days, we called the search off, much to the dismay of his parents, but there was honestly no more that we could have done. We put up posters in the visitor's center and around the park with this kid's photo and what he was wearing last. He was wearing a blue winter coat, and given that that would stand out against the green and brown of the forest, we highlighted this, as most likely this would be what any potential hikers would spot. If he was still wearing it, of course. But given how cold he would get at night, it was a strong possibility. Around three weeks after the kid went missing, we were out on patrol when we get a call from the VC saying that a hiker thinks he found the kid. So we head over to where he said he was. We get there and he's at the foot of this steep rock face that goes up around 90 feet. Like this kid is, and I kid you not, 135 miles from where he had disappeared. He points up to halfway up the rock face, and there it is, in this small cavity in the rock face. The kid's blue jacket. Now there's absolutely no way this could have gotten up there by himself. It was hard enough for me to climb up there and get him myself, and I had training and equipment. I do get up to him, and I swear to God... I nearly fainted and fell to my own death. This cavity was no more than 10 inches deep and long. No more than 3 inches wide either. The jacket's just stuffed in there. So I go to pull it out and as I do, there's this real strong smell coming out of the hole. It smelled like rust and a strong coppery smell. I think it's something to do with the rocks and air pressure or something like that. Heck, I'm not a geologist. But no, I quickly find out what it is when I pulled that jacket out. It's the kid. 
I've never seen anything like it. There was no blood or torn flesh or anything around the cavity's opening, but the way that he had been stuffed in there was horrifying. The way his eye was just looking at me, like a stress ball that had been squeezed, it made my blood turn to ice. The cops had to bring in specialists to chisel the rock out so that they could retrieve his body for an autopsy. My partner at the time was a drinking buddy with one of the detectives. He told me that when they got the kid out, he was messed up, like his insides had exploded out of him at both ends, every bone in his body broken, but no superficial injuries. They said that his blood vessels had exploded and two whole pints of it had leaked out of his mouth, his nose and ears. That's what the copper smell was. And as terrifying as that all is, that kid had been missing for three weeks. But when they got him on that table, they said that he had only been dead for a matter of hours, and they also found berries in his stomach, what was left of him anyway, and he wasn't dehydrated or malnutritional. The cause of death was recorded as exposure. Hilarious. Can you believe that? My partner asked his detective friend about the next time they went drinking, and he told him, We've been told to not ask questions. I don't know what's going on, but I can't find anything about it online. In fact, the missing person's website had him registered as still missing. Someone wants to cover it up, but why? I don't know. Don't want to scare off visitors, I guess, but something took that boy, kept him clean, healthy, and fed and watered for 21 days and then just stuffed him in a hole. That was frankly impossible for any human or natural force to do so. But such force that his insides burst out of his mouth, but they didn't leave a scratch on him. But yeah, exposure, right? That's the one that keeps me awake at night. Us newbies, we all sat there, mouse open. I noticed how the more senior rangers didn't look as shocked. It was more a look of somber shame, like they had heard it all before. A ranger sat across from him and slapped his knee. I think I heard about that one. Made the rounds a while back at another training retreat. But here's one that you haven't heard, trust me. We all leaned in with anticipation and the ranger asked us all to swear that we keep this to ourselves before he began his story. We did, obviously but he makes it abundantly clear that he can't leave the group because he has no idea how bad it could get for him if people find out that he talked. Again, we swear to him that we won't, but even then he isn't comfortable telling us where he works or anything, but we don't push him. Now, I don't know if this is verbatim, but this is how I remember him telling it. Okay, so I'm around a year in. I'm heading back up this trail in the morning doing a check-in on a couple who were camping up there. I get about a hundred yards from their camp and the dude is like, in the middle of the trail, waving me down in a panic. I pulled the ATV over and asked him what was wrong. He was like, dude, he ain't gonna believe what we found. Come look. And so I follow him back to his tent. And I can hear crying. He pulls the flap back and boom. His wife has sat there holding a baby. Now, these guys didn't have one with them yesterday, let alone a baby when I left them, so I'm baffled and ask, was she pregnant? And they tell me that it isn't theirs. 
They say they woke up because they had heard crying in the middle of the night, so they got up and went in to investigate. It was coming from within the tree line, so they go on around 20 feet and they find this baby just laid there against the foot of a tree. They tried to call the VC, but their cell phones were dead, so they were just waiting for me to come back. So I'm like, I can't take this baby back down a five mile trail on my ATV. So I try to radio back to the VC, but I can't reach him either. I figure it's because of the mountains close by and the heavy tree overhanging. So I tell them to keep the baby warm and safe and I'll be back with CPS and the police. So I tear off back down to base and I call CPS from the VC. Tell them to send somebody there and then I'll meet them and help them take up the baby. They start asking me questions which I didn't consider at the time but when she asked me, is the baby hurt, injured, or in need of urgent medical attention? No, they've just found this baby in the middle of the woods, with no other campers up that trail that day. So to say the baby is totally unharmed is a bit of a mystery. Not just unharmed either, I mean, not a single scratch on it. Like the more that I thought about it, it wasn't even dirty or anything. Like it was so bizarre, but I just told her the kid was found in the woods and that they needed to get there ASAP. They tell me that it'll be an hour before they can get somebody out to me. So one of the other rangers tells me that he'll wait there for them and urges me to go back up with some blankets and other stuff. So I point to their camp on the map and I head back up. When I get there, I park up the ATV and start heading to the camp. I expect to hear the baby crying again, but I don't, so I just assume that they finally got it to settle down. But as I get closer, I can't even hear the couple talking or anything. I pull back the tent flap and nearly scream the woods down, and to God. This couple is just laid there, totally butchered. Like, I mean torn apart, everything missing. But no sign of the baby either. That's what I was afraid of the most. Like this black bear or mountain lion who just savaged this poor innocent baby. So I jump on my ATV and start heading back down the trail until I get a signal. I radio to the VC and I'm freaking out. I'm yelling at them to get animal controller, fishing game or something, even the FBI. Base tells me to calm down and that the authorities are already on their way up to me and they suggest for me to wait by the scene to make sure that nobody comes back to destroy the evidence. So, I go back, but I'm just stood on the edge of the camp, refusing to go near that tent by myself. Thirty minutes or so go by and my colleagues show up with the authorities. So I run over to them to guide them to the tent. But I don't see any CPS van, no animal control vehicle, and no cop car. Instead, this black Range Rover pulls up behind my ATV and these two suits get out. They head over to the tent and they put gloves on and pull back the flap. They don't flinch and they don't even say anything. They just look at each other and nod. I didn't notice it at the time, but I noticed bloody footprints leading out of the tent. The two suits turn to me and say, That's fine, we'll take it from here. We're going to need you to go back down to base and close off the trail. I'm confused because the infant is obviously still alive and it had wandered off somewhere. So I'm like, are you going to call CBS? Are they coming? And they just look at me, 
Even through their shades, I can just tell they're glaring holes in me. They're silent for a few seconds before they tell me. They are on their way. In this, like, robotic tone. So I do what they ask and I leave the site. And I head down the trail, telling everybody that they have to turn back or leave. Because the trail isn't safe and it has to be shut down. I was at the VC when more of those black SUVs turned up and headed up there. That trail was closed for a week or so before we had an unexplained forest fire. That's what the higher-ups called it. Totally scorched that site for a five-mile radius. Oh, and this was in the middle of October. It's never sat right with me. And the thing is, I always assumed that couple was murdered and the baby was kidnapped. So those suits who turned up were the FBI. I mean, they definitely looked the part. But I was a rookie back then. And since then, in my 10 years at that park, I've had to deal with the FBI a couple of times. During bodies dumped by killers or a fugitive hiding out in the park. And let me tell you, those suits weren't FBI. Because every fed that I've met loves telling you that they're a fed. And those guys didn't even tell me their names, let alone where they were from. The questions from that case are just, I don't know, many sleepless nights over that one. Anytime I asked for an update, I either just got told not to ask and to get on with my job, or I get some BS story about how a bear had attacked the man, woman, and baby, but just took the infant away for its young. Even if that load of crap was true, though, it still doesn't explain how the baby wound up in the woods in the first place. And it doesn't explain who these suits were either. Us rookies were all leaning back with wide eyes as we rubbed our knees. We exhaled with anxiety as the story made the hairs on our neck stand up. Some of the others started to talk about David Paulides and how a lot of what he talks about resonates with them. How there are so many mysteries when it comes to disappearances in the woods. But the parks and forests do their level best to make sure that nobody finds out the truth. We all venture it's likely so visitors keep coming to the park, regardless if it's safe or not, to protect the tourist income. The woods are never 100% safe anyway, but with a good standard of training or knowledge and sticking to the marked trails, your chances of making it back home are pretty good. But you throw in some of the stuff these guys have witnessed and people may think twice about camping. All of us love what we do and don't want to risk our jobs, but you can tell these gatherings are a good time to sink some cold beers around the fire and get things off our chest. Now, the third story was the most disturbing personally. One of the veterans turned to us and asked, So, where are you boys from again? Black Elk, South Dakota, nine months. The longest serving of us, Richard tells them. Pete, Jeff, Daniel, and all of us added their time spent at the park. Before I finish off by saying that I started on Monday with a chuckle. Some of the rangers started laughing and joking that they probably scared me away before I even began. And I laughed, not wanting to reveal how right they were. The ranger who asked the question goes all wide-eyed and he looks a little disconcerted. Black Elk. Well, dang, I used to go camping there all the time back in the early 2000s. But I haven't been back there in years and I don't ever want to. 
Us newbies all share a concerned look before asking a question that we wished we hadn't. Why? The ranger told the following tale. Well, it was 1999. I was hiking up the hills with my wife. We did a hike there every year, sort of a pre-anniversary ritual that we did. She grew up in Canada near the Ottawa River. The area still had folks with roots and the Indian native tribes who occupied that area way back in the 1600s, and she went on camping trips all the time. So she had grown up on tales of skinwalkers, wendigos, and the like. Anyway, so we were about two days into our trip to the Black Elk Forest, real deep in the wilderness, totally off trail. I was an experienced woodsman by that point and she had been camping all her life, so we were confident that we would be fine. And as far as navigation and wildlife go, we were. But this one night, we decided to go to an area that we had never been to before. We felt adventurous, what can I say? Anyway, we're walking and walking and darn it. We just cannot for the life of us find a good spot to set up for the night. And nightfall hits us pretty darn quick. So by now, we're making our way through the wilderness looking for a clearing to set up camp and... The woods just seem to be getting thicker and denser the further that we go. My wife is ahead of me as I've got my head buried in the map. One just is, I'm like, I think there could be a good spot up ahead. I almost knocked my wife on her face. I look up asking why she had just stopped walking, and she just starts whimpering saying, We need to go back, we shouldn't be here. And I'm like, what's got you talking all stupid? Anyway, she just points forward and I follow her finger into the trees. And I kid you not, there's a house in the middle of the woods. It's old, ruined, and half of it looks like it's near burnt to heck. It's potential shelter for the night. So I start heading towards it to take a closer look, and my wife grabs me like I'm about to walk off the Grand Canyon. I'm about to fully divorce this woman because she's dragging me back the way we came and I'm tired as heck. But I've been with my wife for a long time. She's tough. Nothing really rattles her. But that look in her eye, man, I just knew to do what she said. Anyway, we hike for another hour or two in the opposite direction. Every so often, she's turning to me all wide-eyed and gasping at me. Did you hear that, Rick? I tell her that I don't hear nothing and that she's just tired. Her mind's playing tricks in her. But she swears to God that she hears like this muffled screaming back in the distance. I just tell her that it's probably some injured animal and to ignore it. We pick up the pace and get out of there. I didn't tell her at the time, but the thing was, I did hear it. And it wasn't any animal, let me tell ya. When we lose the noises eventually, and to our relief, we find a place to set up camp for the night. We get the tent up and get a fire going and sit down to make some quick food before we turn in. We're sitting around the fire, heating up some dinner when I confide in her that I had indeed heard the screaming. I explained that I just didn't want her to panic and to keep a clear head until we got to safety. We both discussed just how creepy and unsettling the sound was and... I ask her why she was so spooked when we had spotted the house. She tells me this tale about this woman who lived in spearfish in the early 90s. 
She had killed a bunch of kids and the town came to her house in the woods and drove her out by burning her house down. They grabbed her and did some horrible things and they left her nailed to a tree so that she could slowly freeze to death in the winter. There's an urban legend that her ghost still inhabits the woods and if you see her house to run because if you go near to her inside it she'll come after you. She starts having like a joke with me, holding the torch under her chin and making ghost noises. When suddenly her face drops and she's looking at something behind me. She turns to face the fire and I turn to look at what scared her. She snaps at me, quietly hushing me to face the fire. I can hear twigs snapping and leaves crunching but she just keeps begging me to not look at her and to just look at the fire and to not respond to anything she says. She tries to make small talk and keeps her mind occupied, but it was tough. Whatever this thing was, it had followed us, and it was walking towards us. I slowly start to reach for my Glock, but my wife grabbed my arm and told me just to face forward and to ignore it. Easier said than done when it came and stood behind us. Now, I'm sat at 6 o'clock and my wife is sat at 8, and I can feel the thing behind me, wheezing hard and muffled groaning, and the smell, good God, the smell, like rotten meat. I started to feel bits of warm and putrid air in the back of my neck, like a pig was breathing on me through a sieve. I look over at my wife and she's staying strong. But the tears are coming out of her eyes and I'm just about to pee my pants when I hear this thing say, Give your face. Like in a muffled voice. Like they were saying it through a rag or something. I do what my wife says and I just lose myself in the flames. I hear the thing move away from me and head back into the trees. After about 20 minutes, my wife finally speaks. That was the black elk witch. I asked her what the heck she had wanted and how did she know how to get rid of her. She tells me, as the legend goes, if you ever hear her coming and get to a fire, she doesn't like it. If you stare at the fire, she won't come near it to look at you. She told me that she wanted her faces, and that's why she said not to look at her. She also said not to reply to anything she says because if you do, she'll take your tongue. We packed up at first light and we got the heck out of there. I've never been back since. The ranger finished his story and let the weight of it sink in. I think a lot of us were waiting for him to burst into a fit of laughter and slap his knees, knowing how much he had scared us but it never came. And I was just left thinking of the tales the town folks had told me. The missing people, Georgie Munson. What was going on in the woods of this world? And was there something waiting for me back in the Black Elk wilderness? That Monday, I reported to work for my first day. The first few weeks of my employment here were rather uneventful. I was placed with a senior ranger and I shadowed him around the forest for the best part of the month. And getting in grips with the day-to-day -day life as a forest ranger, I got to know my senior advisor whose name was Chris really well. 
We spent the day shooting the stuff and talking about our families, our hobbies, our sports teams, and so on. When suddenly one day he gets a call on the radio from the VC. I watch as he speaks into the vice. Chris here, over. Hey Chris, we've had a call from a family up on Horse Thief Lake Trailhead. They're saying their two children have wandered off in the night. They can't locate them. Can you go and help them out? The voice asked. Okay, me and David will head up and do a preliminary search of the area. Hopefully they haven't made it too far. But we get in the search and rescue guys on standby. Chris says with a serious tone before placing the radio back in its holster. And he lets out a deep sigh. Well, let's go, Dave. We hopped on our ATVs and headed to where we were needed. When we arrived at the camp, a couple of middle-aged adults were stood on the edge of the clearing, looking increasingly anxious and impatient. We hadn't even pulled the vehicle up before they were yelling incoherently. The woman was begging practically on her knees, pleading for us to help them, whereas the guy was more angry, wondering where the large-scale search party was. Chris began leading the frantic mother back towards the camp to show him where the kids had went missing from. Meanwhile, I was tasked with calming down the irate father, explaining to him that we needed time to assemble the team and volunteers, so we would be making sure the kids weren't just in the nearby vicinity. I tell him that he would be surprised how many missing persons are found within the first 30 minutes. Most of the time, they go to take a leak or a morning walk and they get turned around and can't find their way back. This didn't settle them, however. Understandably, of course, given the circumstances. But he was asserting that his children had been taken. I tried to reassure him that that was unlikely, due to no other people being up in this part of the woods. He wasn't convinced, though. We rejoined the others and began asking the parents about their two kids. Jenny is seven years old and Matthew is ten. They're both wearing red winter coats and black boots. Jenny has shoulder-length blonde hair and Matthew has short brown hair. They were both sleeping in there. The kid's dad tells us, pointing at a small green tent. We got up about an hour and a half ago and they were just gone. No sign of them. My brother and his wife are out there right now, still looking. But we don't have enough eyes to find them. We tried calling out and looking around the area, but we've had no luck. So we called you guys. We need help. He added. The mother is beside herself at this point, barely audible due to tears. She's crying and blubbering that she knew someone was watching them, blaming herself for the current state of affairs. I question the dad about what she's talking about, as Chris pulls out his radio and requests the search and rescue team to be deployed, before he heads out into the tree line to aid the other campers in the search. Two days ago, we were hiking, about 10 miles from here, when we started hearing noises. Twigs snapping, leaves crunching, stuff like that. We looked around but couldn't see anyone. Just assumed it was an animal, but that night, we were camped up. Me and my wife were laid in our tent, as were the others. We start to hear something in the distance. It sounded like um, whistling, I think. It's hard to tell, but it definitely had a tune to it. Could have been the wind, though. He begins to explain, having a hard time putting it into context. Okay, I say, probing him to continue. 
Yesterday, more sounds followed us as we hiked. Twigs and branches breaking. And then last night, we're in our tents, all of us are asleep. I start having this dream that I can hear the whistling sound again. But this time, it's close and all around the camp. It's like the wheels on the bus. Yeah, that's the tune. I wake up and that's when I find my kid's tent door open and they're both gone. His sentence trailed off as his head hangs down and he starts massaging his neck. He gets this serious look on his face and with tears in his eyes, he says, I'm starting to think that I wasn't dreaming. I stay silent, processing what he's just told me. As the father starts slapping his own head aggressively. Idiot, why didn't you go check? He scolded himself. I sat there awkwardly, trying to calm the man down, assuring him that we would do our best to find his kids. His wife approaches him and they both find comfort in an embrace as they collapse in each other's arms. I watch on gracefully. I can't tell you how many stories that I heard at the retreat about search and rescue ops where couples start screaming and blaming each other. It just makes these situation a whole lot worse. I request a photo of the two kids so I can give it to the SNR team when they arrive. The father hands me a photo out of his wallet and I examine it while Chris walks back into the clearing with the in-laws. No kids with them, much to the further dismay of the parents. I examine the picture. It's a family photo of the mom and dad standing on either side of their two missing children. I focused in on these small details of the youngins appearances, trying to find those small distinguishing features that would make them more identifiable to potential witnesses. I noticed the mole on the left cheek of Matthew and I made a note of it. Jenny had a peculiar eye color of blue mixed in with green and I made a note of that too. The search and rescue turned up around an hour later. They got the volunteers and the rangers organized quickly and began dividing the surrounding area on a map into search squares. The entire team would be divided into smaller teams that would search each square thoroughly, radioing in that it was clear once we had finished. We searched every square over the course of five days. Each night that went passed with no result. The mom screamed louder and the dad held her tighter. As we all imagine these two kids out in the woods, scared, cold, and hungry. But on the fifth night when these search teams came back into camp, once again empty-handed, the talk began of calling off the search effort. The parents began screaming and yelling, accusing us of giving up too early. But there was nothing more that we could have done. If those kids weren't where we had looked, then they would either be abducted by aliens or they had sprouted wings and flown out of the park. But just as the SNR team leader was explaining they would keep an eye out and rangers would patrol the trails every day, just in case they turned up, the bushes began to rustle behind us. We all turned to see what it was, some even raising firearms in case it was a large predator. But it wasn't a predator. It wasn't even an animal. It was a kid. Jenny, the missing seven-year-old girl, came pushing her way out of the tree line and into the camp. Like nothing had ever happened. She looked clean, healthy, and coherent. 
She didn't look like a girl who had spent over 120 hours in the wilderness with no supplies or equipment. Her mother ran to her and grabbed her like she would never get to touch her again. We all rushed over to the heartwarming reunion between the parents and their child, but those feelings of warmth and happiness came to a halt. As I began to process how wrong this entire scenario was, and the parents realized that Jenny was alone. Jenny, where is your brother? The mother asked frantically. Jenny just stares at her vacantly and her response has lived in my head rent-free ever since. He's playing with the funny animals. No trace of Matthew was ever found until tonight, which had prompted me to write this because I don't know what's out there but I think it or they are taunting me, just like they had done to the person before me. He kept a diary and now I am doing the same. After Jenny pointed to a group in the direction of where she had come from, they took to try and track her movements to find Matthew. The mother stayed with Jenny while the dad went with the group, now reinstilled with the hope that Matthew was alive. Funny animals to him meant a squirrel or a rabbit, but the answer just seemed much more sinister to a neutral. I guess people hear things differently when they have an emotional attachment. I stayed with the mother and Jenny. I sat down beside them making sure that she had everything she needed. Food, water, blankets, whatever. At one point, the mother said that she needed to use the bathroom but couldn't bring herself to leave Jenny. I assured her that I wouldn't let Jenny out of my sight and tell her that I'll sit and talk with her until she gets back. After reluctantly agreeing, she leaves me alone with the girl. I decided to use this time to get a bit more information out of her. Jenny, where did you go in the night? Your mom says she got up and couldn't find either of you or your brother. I asked with a soft caution. All the funny animals asked us to come play. She responds, like it was the most normal response in the world. I decided to humor her. Okay, and when you say funny animals, what do you mean? The fox man. He asked us to come with him. Matthew didn't want to, so the fox man carried him. She responds cheerfully. I sat eyes wide, as the images in my head did not match her innocent recount of her experience. Okay, and then what happened when you went with the fox man? Where did he take you? I asked, trying to keep up my facade of enthusiastic interest. That hid just how disturbing this all was. He took us to the others. The deer man, the bear man, the wolf man, and the kitty man. Okay. My voice trembling with fear at this point. And what did they do with you? What made them funny, Jenny? They took us to their house. And they were funny because they were like people but with the heads of animals. They didn't wear clothes even though it was cold outside. Oh, and they crawled around on their hands and feet with their bellies up in the air. Funny, huh? She asked me with a giggle. Um, yeah, funny. I gasped before zoning out, as a horrifying image of a crab crawling men with animal heads was haunting my mind. I stayed quiet as the mom began walking back over to us. One question popped into my mind to ask while I had the chance. Was their house in the middle of the woods? It looked kind of burnt, like it had been on fire. 
I asked curiously. The girl nods, which made my heart sink. And what happened when you got there? Did you stay there the whole time? I ask, the seriousness palpable in my expression. Well, they took us inside, and the foxman fed me insane to me in the attic. And after a while, they brought me back to mom and dad. She responds with an appreciation to her tone. The mom is just about to reach us when I ask, what about her brother? The other funny animals took him down to the basement to play with them. They said that they would bring him back when they were finished, so he'll be back soon. The mother sits down and gives Jenny another big hug, like she had just found her all over again. I smiled politely, silently assuring her that she's been no trouble. Jenny was wrong though. They never found Matthew, nor the house that he was apparently taken to. I had told Chris the details from my disturbing conversation with Jenny, but Chris informed me that he had been a ranger around these parts for 12 years, and he's never come across a house in the woods, ruined or new. We searched, nonetheless, over the next few months, but nothing ever came of it. This was my first missing persons case. It did rattle me, I'll admit that. The sound her mother made when the party came back empty-handed, ah, good God. I think the fact Jenny came back gave her hope. So to have it ripped away once again, it just broke her. I felt guilty. I gave the couple my phone number and agreed to keep an eye out for the boy and to do everything I could to find him. Chris told me that I shouldn't have done this. I felt that he was being a little cold and harsh at the time. I was just trying to give the couple some peace of mind. But unfortunately, I saw his point in the end. Over the next three months, I must have received over 200 calls from that couple, demanding that I find their boy. And when we found nothing, guess who was the punching bag? I got to the point where I simply had to ignore their calls. They eventually stopped and I assumed they had accepted their loss, but no. The officer called me one day and told me that the couple had raised a complaint against me. They scolded me for not setting boundaries and getting too emotionally invested in a job where we can't get emotionally invested. People go missing in the woods all the time. I'm gonna have to get used to that apparently. The higher-ups inform me that protocol dictates that I should be placed on suspension while the complaint is investigated. I began to hand over my firearm and my ranger's badge in a huff when Bill told me to stop. Me whispered to the other shot callers before they turned back to face me. They were confident that I wouldn't lose my job at the end of it. It would go down as just a lack of foresight due to inexperience. There was no malice in what I did and I didn't get anybody hurt or killed due to misconduct or incompetence. The parents were just looking for a scapegoat to blame for the disappearance of their son. And my do-gooder attitude had put me in the firing line. But regardless, they had made a complaint about my conduct. Messing with their heads and exploiting their grief by making false promises were the words they used in their letter to the office. They made me out to be a careless sociopath and due to the forestry services being a government office, I needed to be punished accordingly. But they informed me that I had an alternative to simply going home for three months while this thing ran its course. One of the fire watchers had abandoned his post without notice, two weeks ago. We were into the spring and it could be months before they found a new recruit for the tower and summer was coming. 
They offered me the tower position while I sat on my suspension. I would be out of the way in case any inspectors of the couple came around. And rather than sitting on my butt at home, I could earn a new skill and keep my knowledge and mental mapping of the woods on point. It seemed like a win-win at the time. I'd been in this tower for three weeks at the time of writing. I was given a crash course by Bill as he brought me up here. I have enough food for one month, but if I need more, I radio in and they can have some brought to me. Bathroom porter cabin was at the foot of the tower. I had books, a TV, and a stack of crappy DVDs to keep me somewhat entertained. I was to watch for large fires throughout the day, along with a daily patrol of a five-mile radius, looking for reckless campfires. The tower was in the middle of backwood wilderness, around 20 miles from the Black Hills. No trails, so any campfires around here were strictly forbidden, especially this time of the year. This seemed like a pretty easy job and one that would fit my personality as I wasn't exactly a social butterfly. But after around three days, I started to miss the human interaction. Because when you're alone, isolated, and in the middle of the deep dark woods at night, things can get eerie to say the least. It was night five when I found it. I was laying on the bed listening to the breeze whistle through the trees. I didn't know if it was the conversation with Jenny still ruling my mind, but I swore the whistling began to form a tune. I told myself that I was just exhausted and it was because of this bed. I've never felt so uncomfortable in my life. It was like one of the lats were deformed and digging into my back. I climbed onto the floor, grabbing a hold of the mattress and driving my knees into the floor in order to lift it. I found the problem instantly. The lats were fine. The mattress was a little thin, but the problem lied in the fact that hidden beneath the mattress and in the middle two lats were two VHS tapes and a ledger. I looked down at confusion in what I was seeing. I took them out and I placed them down on my bedside table, allowing the mattress to drop back perfectly into place. I hopped back onto the bed and picked up the two VHS tapes. They looked old, even for their era. DVDs would be ancient these days, but at least I'd be able to see what's on them. So instead, I picked up the ledger. A green leather sleeve was hugging the cluster of white paper pages with a black elastic strap holding it all together. I turned on my bedside lamp, peeled back the strap, and opened up the first page. For anyone who reads this, please read with caution. Heed what I have written as I have survived this long. But if you find this before I can give it to you, be careful, I wasn't able to finish it. The ominous message was all that sat in the middle of the page, and it made me sit upright in bed, instantly grabbing my attention. I turned the page once more and this time was greeted with a full page of writing, neat, rational even. I bent the book into a rainbow shape and let the 100 or so pages flick over and over like a flip book. I noticed two things. The entire book bar the last two pages was full, and the more the pages went on, the more erratic and frantic the man's handwriting became. I read the last two words on the last page of the book. She's here. A chill ran down my spine as I read it. I quickly flicked back to the front of the book and began reading from the first page. 
My name is Mark Ellis. I was a fire watcher. I was stationed in Tower 5, located in the Black Hills of the Black Elk Wilderness. And if you are here attempting to do my job because I am gone, then there are things you need to know in order to survive. Things that will help you see the next morning. Because believe me, they are out there. She is out there. Waiting, watching, pushing. Trying to get you to make a mistake. One mistake and you belong to her. You're in her house now and she does not want you here. I don't know what to make of all of this yet. But I pulled out my laptop and decided to start making my own journal about the things that I've seen and heard so far. And soon, hopefully, I'll be able to update you with the things that I have seen and heard since. I'll keep you all posted. Speak soon. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.